Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala. And today, or tonight rather, this is a very special episode. I'm super excited. Uh, Revealed Apologetics has reached, uh, when I first advertised this this particular episode, we've reached 5,000 subscribers. But um, since then, a couple of weeks ago, uh, within the past two weeks, we've got, I think, 100 or 200 more. So we're somewhere around 5,000 200 or something like that. So uh, the channel's growing. I really, really appreciate all of the support and the love that folks have um, just given and showered on on what we're doing here. And so um, I just hope that this particular uh, Q&A session um, and theology and apologetic conversation is a blessing to folks who listen in. And so this is a, a Q&A. So we're not waiting till the end necessarily. Uh, depending on how the questions come in, um, we'll take them one by one and see how the evening goes. All right. So I have an interesting bunch of uh, folks here. My, my goal in doing this was to get folks that you don't normally think of if you're in the world of apologetics and uh, YouTube and things like that. My goal was to get as, as many apologists as I can that you would never think about seeing together on the uh, on the screen. I thought that'd be fun. And and um, as you guys know from the thumbnail, if you follow um, all of our, our content, we come from different theological and apologetic backgrounds. Now, uh, some uh, on the more extreme side might think, hey, you know, Eli, what's going on here? Are you compromising on your principles? No, I am not. I stand where I stand. My guests stand where they stand. And we're just going to have an awesome time of, of fellowship and answer questions from our particular perspectives. And hopefully you guys can uh, benefit from uh, the wide variety and diversity of backgrounds uh, that each of my guests have. So um, I'm really excited to have my guests on here. So let me introduce uh, my guests. I'll just kind of invite them all on here. Uh, let's see here. Boom, boom, boom. Let's fill up this screen. Gentlemen, how are you guys doing? Hey, awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and helping me celebrate 5,000 subs. And um, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. You got the Home Alone, you got the Macaulay Culkin, uh, oh my goodness, you know, um, and I appreciate you guys willing to come on with me and to uh, engage my audience. Um, but before we do that, let's kind of uh, share with folks, if, if people who follow uh, my channel might not know who you are and what you do, uh, maybe you guys can take a few moments to kind of introduce yourself and tell folks a little bit about what you do and where they can find you. So I'm just going to go in order of my screen here. Uh, my first guest here is Michael Jones from Inspiring Philosophy. Why don't you tell folks a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm Michael Jones. I run Inspiring Philosophy, a YouTube channel. Uh, now I'm on TikTok as well. Uh, I make a lot of uh, apologetic videos, graphic, animated, type-driven style videos. So you can check me out on TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. All same links. like say, Same name, I mean. Okay. Excellent. And Dr. Tony Costa, why don't you introduce yourself? I know folks might be familiar. I've had you on a, a few times before, uh, but why don't you just take a moment and, and tell folks about you? Yeah, it's easy to identify me. I'm the only Canadian here. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm the only alien here, the foreigner <laughs> That's right. in your midst, and you're supposed to love the alien just like yourselves. So um, my name is again, Tony Costa. I'm from Toronto, Canada, <clears throat> and uh, I'm also a Christian apologist. been involved in apologetics for 30 plus years. And um, I teach uh, at the Toronto Baptist Seminary. I also teach as an instructor at the University of Toronto. And um, my area of specialty is apologetics, general apologetics. And I'm also a pastor. I do pastoral work. So I wear two hats, basically the academic and also uh, the, the the pastoral dimension of ministry. So uh, congratulations, Eli, on your 5,000 subscribers plus. And, uh, and uh, may the Lord continue to uh, increase your tribe. Thank you. Yeah. 
Thank you for that. Uh, all right, Matt from Karm.org. Why don't you introduce yourself? Your mic, your mic is off, Matt. <laughs> I can't hear you. <laughs> well, okay. Uh -oh. okay. Can you so, so. Can you hear me? Yeah, there we go. There we go. Yeah. Right. What happened? It was on Oculus. That's all right. No, no worries. All right. Yeah, I'm Matt Slick. Uh, my real name is Slick. That's why I can say I'm slicker than all of you put together. <laughs> and, uh, so I've been doing apologetics since 1980, run karm.org, uh, a huge website, written over 5,000 articles, been doing radio for 17 years, written a bunch of books, do impromptu debates, uh, just teach and things like that, generally annoying, and uh, love to do apologetics. Uh, so God's uh, granted me that privilege of doing it full time, and that's what I do. All right. And, and awesome about Matt is that he his site was up when like the Internet was invented. So he was kind of the, <laughs> he was ahead of the curve when we were still running around in the 90s doing whatever we were doing in the 90s. So back in 95, uh, awesome. I started it. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Matt. And uh, my next guest is uh, not Wes Mantooth. I don't even know where that came from. Oops, but... <laughs> I left that on there. So sorry. <laughs> Well, uh, my next guest, maybe you might recognize his face from his super popular um, debate teacher react videos, which, by the way, and, and I love everyone on the screen here. I watch all of, of your, your content, um, but I have to admit that when Nate comes out with a debate teacher reacts video, that's the first one I go to because I love I love how you really pick apart and make awesome observations in these debates. And I learned so much. So I learned a lot from all you guys, but I love your little thing you got going on there with those debate teachers. Right? They're so informative and I, and they're exciting. So I just wanted to say that, but why don't you share with folks a little bit about who you are and what you do? Thank you. Yeah. My name's Nate. Um, and I think y'all made a mistake because I don't I don't know if I'm supposed to be on this roster. <laughs> uh, it's quite a pleasure to be with you all. So um, I have uh, an organization. It's been around for, shoot, nine years. And it's called Wise Disciple. And we have a YouTube channel that we only really started paying attention to in the last two years, trying to make videos, good videos. And yeah, there's a debate teacher react. So I used to be a debate teacher. And so I look at theology and apologetics debates. And I think I've looked at, Inspiring philosopher Michael Jones slayed uh, Aaron Raw like he was dead and not recovered, and he's I think he's, I think he's still in the hospital from that. So, but um, it was. <laughs> His was hey, he off. said in there, "I win." He said, "I win." So that means he won, right? <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> yeah. So it's been quite a pleasure, though, and uh, it's funny because I, I actually don't really consider myself um, to be among you all. So it's, it's quite a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm going to be uh, geeking out with everybody all else. All right. Well, just a heads up, Matt Slick also had an interaction with Aaron Ra, and I thought uh, he also did an excellent job slaying. So he got slayed twice. Look at that. It says it is appointed for every man to die once. Apparently you can die more than once. So there we go. We found a loophole in the scripture. There you go, atheist. All right. Uh, my next guest is Braxton Hunter from Trinity Radio. Why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Braxton. I've never debated Aaron Ra. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, uh, I have debated some people and I have to say it before I tell you anything about me, which is only moderately important, I guess. Um, Matt Slick, I wanted to say said, it's an honor to be here with all of you guys. Mm. But Matt, like has been said, you've been doing apologetics online for as for as, almost as long as there's been an Internet. And I just want to tell you what an honor it is to be on the stream with you 
because I've been listening to you for years and years and years. And so it feels kind of like being on here with a celebrity, although I kind of feel that way about all you guys. But uh, I just wanted to say that from the jump. Can I give you my wife's cell number <laughs> and you need to call her and tell her how great I am because <laughs> I need seriously, I need the help. But, uh, yeah. but praise God, praise God, praise God yeah. for all that. So in, in any case, um, I run Trinity Radio, which is a podcast and a YouTube channel. If you just go on YouTube and search Trinity Radio, you'll find it. And uh, I'm also the uh, president of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary in Evansville, Indiana, which is a uh, distance learning online school, but it has existed since 1969. And we're non-denominational, but theologically conservative and um, we have, I know that we have Calvinists and non-Calvinists represented here tonight. We have Calvinists and non-Calvinist professors at Trinity and, uh, but I'm, I'm honored to represent the school on this platform tonight with you. Excellent. Well, um, I'm just going to continue to wait. There's some questions coming in, but I just want to kind of give a little bit more time for, uh, some more to flow in. So my first question for you guys is in terms of doing apologetics, who has influenced you the most in your journey, uh, to learning how to defend the faith. Uh, Michael, why don't you go first? You can list maybe maybe two or three if you have, or maybe one. Or I'll go, I'll go in order. I think the first person that really got me interested in apologetics was someone who actually helped lead me to Christ, which would be J.P. Holding. Uh, many, many years ago, I'm talking like, you know, you know, over not, almost 20 years ago or so, but it was probably the first person who really got me uh, interested in apologetics, as well as uh, people like Richard Swinburne. I feel like it's been very helpful uh, in that sort of regard, in terms of getting me interested in the evidence for God's existence and philosophical uh, philosophy. And then from there, I just really just sort of branched out and I've been just interested in a lot of different philosophers and uh, theologians, historians like John Walton, Mike Lacona, uh, more lately than that, um, as well as um, Richard Hess as well. I've been reading a lot of his stuff. So, okay. I mean, it, it's hard to really pin it down to one person. It's just been, I've been, been influenced by a lot of different people. Sure. All right. Thank you for that. Well, uh, how about you, Dr. Costa? Yeah. Well, when I became a, I came from a Roman Catholic background and found Christ when I was 15 years old. And at a young age, I, uh, I almost fell prey to a cult uh, at the time, the Worldwide Church of God, led oh, by wow. Herbert W. Armstrong. And uh, it was really the work of Walter Martin and the Kingdom of the Cults that really the Lord used that to open my eyes. And uh, that's when I felt a call to apologetics uh, at the young age of 15, 16. And um, I went on to higher education. And yeah, great. You got the book. I got all the editions, uh, including, <laughs> including the old 1960 one with all the wavy lines. That's right. Down. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, I, I actually got to meet Dr. William Lane Craig back in early. Uh, this would have been 1990. Uh, he came up to the University of Toronto to debate a, a famous atheist, the abortion doctor, Dr. Henry Morgenthaler. And um, this, when we're talking William Lane Craig here, he just finished his second doctorate, his THD, uh, and uh, in Germany. And we're talking William Craig with the full beard. He, I think he's got the best beard in the world when he did have it. And, uh, <laughs> I have to say, I, I, I agree. Yeah. If there were, if there were apologist trading cards, I would yeah. trade my <laughs> William Lane Craig beardless for the beard <laughs> William Lane Craig. Yeah. He, would, money. yeah he, he had the best, the best beard anyway. Um, so he debated uh, Morgan Teller. I was absolutely blown away by, mm. by the, the knowledge that mm. Craig had amassed. Uh, and, and it showed for the first time as a young 20 year old at that time, that the Christian faith was reasonable and that it could be articulated in an academic setting 
uh, where where he was questioned, not just by students, but professors of philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, professors of rhetoric and logic and so forth and so on. So I was I was really, really impacted by Dr. Craig's uh, debate. And uh, so that, that led me forward. I, I as as Mike said, I, I branched out into various other authors, R.C. Sproul, among others. Uh, and so the Lord has been good. I um, I've been um, in this ministry, as I said, for 30 plus years. I've seen the Lord do wondrous things, um, seeing Mormons saved, Jehovah's Witnesses saved, atheists, uh, Roman Catholics coming to Christ. And um, so a lot of that information, I mean, if people are interested, my YouTube is Toronto Apologetics. And uh, a lot of that, a lot of information in that area is provided there. So yeah, uh, apologetics is fun. It's, you know, jump in the water. The water feels great. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, What about you, Braxton? Yeah, so um, I was already pastoring a church in my early 20s when I became really aware of apologetics. I mean, I knew what apologetics was, generally speaking, but mm-hmm. before I got my hands in it, and really the reason for it was because I found that it was helpful in evangelism. I had a friend who um, had been struggling with same-sex attraction, and he came to decide that it was either he could either live a, a, biblically, a biblical lifestyle or... Um, uh, a same-sex lifestyle, and that's what he chose to do, the same-sex lifestyle, and he gave up the Bible, and now he says he's an atheist. And and so I wanted to give him, it rattled me, not in a sense that um, I didn't have an answer, uh, not in the sense that it caused me doubt, but it rattled me in the sense that I wanted to give him an answer that I didn't have. I wanted to Mm, say something I didn't know how to say. So I got into apologetics at that point. That would have been when I discovered the great Matt Slick, who's here with us uh, tonight. And, uh, but initially I would say, (laughs) you surprised him. He goes, (laughs) (laughs) who me? (laughs) You know, Matt, I'll tell you the first time I ever saw Matt Dillahudge's face, you were, you were a, a caller or something to the atheist experience. That was years and years and years right. ago. Little did I know that I would ever debate Matt Dillahunty and all that. But, uh, <laughs> but, but Norman Geisler uh, probably uh, did a lot initially um, uh, to, to spark my interest. I bought his four-volume Systematic Theology. And I read it and I told him I read it. And he said, well, that's you, me and my wife are the only ones who's ever read that. And then <laughs> after that. A monster. I think I, is it this one here? Yeah, well, it was originally in four volumes. Now they've, okay. they've put it down into one. But in any case, uh, that from there, it became William Lane Craig and Habermas and J.P. Moreland sure. and a lot of the ones that were really popular and still are popular, but, but at that time. And really, Mike Lycona, this is the last thing I'll say, Mike, Mike Lycona, um, I know that that's a contra- he can be people have controversial opinions about Mike Lycona, but I was at a Southern Baptist Convention event in Atlanta and met Mike Lycona. And he didn't know who I was, and and I was I'm not anybody now. My most important credential is I'm a servant of the King. But at that time, I was really nobody. But he sat with me for three hours and poured into me, and has been a mm. friend ever since. And I, and that's meant a lot to me. Yeah. Um, so those are some of the names. Obviously, there are many, many others. And and really, my parents uh, are, are the biggest influence because they always had an answer. And if they didn't have an answer, I don't remember a time they didn't have an answer, but they would have found one for me, mm. and it was always thoughtful. That's awesome. Awesome, dude. Uh, what about you, Nate? Yeah, I had a similar experience. I initially got saved, uh, you know, immersing myself into everything uh, that that is to do with Christianity. And my best man at my wedding, he was my best friend, um, also was on this kind of journey to a faith. Uh, in the beginning, I thought it was we were traveling along similar paths, and I found out that is not the case. And so we got into a lot of disputation back then. Um, 
And same, I just, I felt like I should know some things like when he was throwing challenges at me that I didn't know. And so uh, it, it just caused me to go back and, and do a lot of reading. And so in my formative years, I mean, the, the names that come to mind, cause I feel like I, it was like an information dump in those first couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, if you guys can <laughs> relate to that, but um, JP Moreland, I think I, I just accidentally stumbled across a lecture of his, it was audio only. Um, and I was just captured. He got me like, it was just, it was, I was, I was really friendly to his style. Um, and then from what I learned was, you know, JP Moreland was taught by Dallas Willard and Howard Hendricks. And those are all <laughs> heroes to me as well as a former teacher. Um, so it was JP Moreland and then, um, Greg Kokel, I think, <laughs> I think Greg Kokel has some kind of a radio show still. And so in the early years as a Christian, um, cause I got saved in 09, I'm calling the Greg Kokel radio show asking about my friend. What do I say about this? And my friend said that, and what do I say about that? And so if you go back in the archive, don't, but if you go back in the archives long enough, you can find my f- phone calls into Greg Kokel. And so Greg Kokel was very helpful to me. And then Francis Schaefer, uh, Francis Schaefer, I, I think I found his trilogy, the Francis Schaefer trilogy. Um, so what is that? It's like the, the, the God who was there escape from reason and he's there and he's not silent or something like that. Yeah. I found it in a bargain bin and for like almost nothing. And I picked it up and I was working in a hospital at the time. And I read all three, the whole trilogy in a weekend. I was just so it like enraptured. It was, it was amazing. So, um, mm-hmm. those, those three, I think are pretty big. Those are the ones too. Francis Schaefer, particularly on my particular style of communication, I think is, okay. is pretty big. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you for that. Uh, what about you, Matt? Who have been the greatest influences on you in your development in apologetics and theology? Yeah, well, you're, you're Mike. Muted. You're muted, Matt. You're muted. Not oh, very you slow. He's the guy who's been doing this since the internet was invented. He's still learning. He's been learning the internet. I'm working on stuff. I got, I got the windows open. I'm working while you guys are talking. He's writing so, articles while he's a guest on a show. Yeah. I, I, well, I'm working on my Eastern Orthodox stuff and going through a thing there on and stuff. And then I'm writing on presuppositionalism. I got another window over another chat thing when we're done here. I'm supposed to go. All right. So, uh, and I, that's why I didn't want you guys to hear me that's typing. Right, no worries. The uh, guys who've influenced me the most, uh, Walter Martin and uh, Chuck Missler. I used to attend their classes back in SoCal, went to seminary, and it was John Frame. And then after seminary, I uh, got introduced to uh, Greg Bonson and uh, learned a lot from him. And then there's this lesser-known apologist that people don't often refer to, uh, Paul the Apostle. And so I, I <laughs> learned a great deal from him. I actually, uh, for real... When I first read Paul the Apostle, my uh, my uh, my faith was shaken okay. because I didn't understand what he was saying. Once I understood what he was saying, it was grounded. So I think that he is the uh, he's the quintessential quintessence of, of good apologetics. Uh, I really do believe that yeah. uh, and logic and things like that. But anyway, there you go. Yeah, and and what I just to piggyback off what you're saying there, Matt. I know that we all have our influences, and and but what I've seen in Matt's ministry that has really struck me is that uh, in your responses to people, uh, your responses, especially even your advice to people who are asking like life questions, uh, your responses are so filled with scripture that you've done an excellent job, I think, in, in really 
um, hiding God's word in your heart. And that really comes out in the way that you engage um, a lot of the questions. So I appreciate that. Uh, for myself, um, William Lane Craig has been a great influence on me. Um, of course, everyone who follows my channel knows that Greg Bonson, Cornelius Van Til, um, James White, um, had just watching his debates and things like that. Um, and of course, Matt Slick. Um, actually, it was Matt Slick who, listening to Carm, uh, the old show, when you used to do all your impressions, you used to have you used to have these little characters. You know, uh, what was the one character that uh, you would rip? They rip uh, rip scriptures out of context. What was it? Yep. Reverend E.R. Tickler. Uh, yeah. Okay, that's right. Okay. Right. Well, E.R. Tickler, um, e. Tickler. That's right. That's right. So um, listening to you and answering uh, how you answered questions actually helped me gain confidence in my conversations. And I love the way you kind of analyzed and questioned the assumptions that, uh, in the question that was being asked. And I learned a, just by listening, driving and listening, I learned a lot from you uh, in how you wow. answer questions. Go, go ahead, Braxton. That's one person. <laughs> well, here's another. I was going to say that years ago, it wasn't too many years ago, probably in 2000. Well, I guess that's relative. 2010, um, something like that. You were talking with somebody called the Rational Response Squad. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Sorry. Got Sorry. That, that was a squeak that kind of came out because I love it when they say Rational Response Squad. Because <laughs> I think it's funny. It's, it's just funny. Sorry. But you did. You you gave me some confidence uh, in terms of, of that sort of thing because you said, I remember her saying she was nervous to be talking to you. And you said, I used to be nervous when I had these kind of conversations. You don't have to be nervous. Just, just, let's just get in there and find out what's going on. And I thought, I love that, that attitude, you know, and that was, that was empowering. But, Good. but, but. What I get scared is when I'm listening to Matt's show and a guy is being somewhat evasive and Matt just goes out and says, are you a Jehovah's Witness? Well, uh, as soon as soon as they don't answer the question right away, I'm like, oh, man, it's about to go down. No, no, no. Wait, are you if you don't answer the question, I'm going to let you go. It's my show, my rules. I'm like, oh, man. Yes, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. And then you go in and, and you do your you do your thing. I, I enjoy that. But I'm nice. I'm nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they're not going to answer the question, just so I know where they're coming from, why talk right, to them? That's, that's all. Right. But, but we know that once they admit where they're coming from, it's it's over. So uh, the buzz saw right. turned on. Uh, okay. Well, uh, now that we kind of got that, that's cool. I like hearing kind of the background of, of where everyone's coming from and, and your influences and things like that. So let's kind of take some questions. Uh, so there are some questions here. Um, feel free to answer however you'd like. If uh, you want to chime in or piggyback on what someone else says, uh, feel free to do so. Okay, so Alyssa Scott, thank you so much for your question. Uh, Alyssa asks to everybody, uh, do you continue studying other apologetic methods? I think that's what she wanted to say, besides the one that you hold to. So are you guys still, um, do you guys every now and then, I mean, I'm, most of us are fu already fully entrenched in the methods we use, but do you occasionally kind of like trickle over into other methodologies and making sure you understand that, or maybe you can draw some positives from other perspectives? Uh, and if so, what what does that look like for you guys? Uh, how about um, how about Braxton? Why don't you go first? Yeah, so um, I realize that there are a lot of people on the evidential side, which is the side that I'm on, who think that that presuppositionalism needs to go away. It's not helpful. Blah blah blah. But in reality, on our show, we both, um, though we've we've taken shots before, <laughs> we we actually find uh, presuppositionalism to be helpful. Now, I realize that there are some who think that the theological positions, the Calvinist theological positions, uh, are um, necessary or at least very important to presuppositionalism. 
and we don't share those uh, those positions, but we still find it very important to, to, to function in some way, uh, often in ways that a presuppositionalist would in terms of challenging worldview, establishing the foundation of intelligibility and things like that. Right. Um, so I still study it. I, I think the book that opened my eyes to it, aside from the five views on apologetics book, was Avery Dulles's history of apologetics. I just I, I saw it emerge there in history. I saw that there was value in it. And uh, so I still study that. And, um, you know, I think we think bifurcated presuppositionalism and evidentialism. But if you go by the, the categories that are set out in those kind of books, you know, there's there's uh, classical, evidential, um, uh, cumulative case, presuppositional, reformed epistemology. Um, and I, I think all of those uh, have something of value. And that's, I tried to I tried to say so in my book, Evangelistic Apologetics, sure. for that very reason. Yeah. Now, now, you know, Braxton looks all dignified there and, and, you know, he's very, calm. You're very calm and cool, but a lot of people don't know this. Bra Braxton and I, we're, we talk a lot throughout the week and we've had, our, <laughs> we've had our, we've had our debates over the phone where it was very, it was a lot of fun. Let's I apologize to Elaine gave him $20 <laughs> one time. <laughs> That's right. hey, that was awesome. So next time we, I'll make sure, you, you know, I'll get under your skin so you can be mean to me and give me more money uh, in super chat. So, all right. Uh, what about you, Michael? Um, do you study other apologetic methods or are you kind of locked in on your own method or do you kind of try to see what other people are saying to draw from that? Where do you stand on that? Well, I think it's just natural to check the other methods and see what other people are doing. I will say I'm definitely more of a classical apologist. Apologist, I'm not convinced by the presuppositionalist approach. Sure. It's fine if someone else is, go for it. But my, my motto basically is I'd rather be doing apologetics than talking about how to do apologetics. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'm getting like on a, on a minimal now one testimony a month from the apologetic work I'm doing online. So it's mm -hmm. it's affecting the culture. It's helping people. So I'm just going to keep doing it. Uh, it's working great. Yeah. And that's how I've been doing things, I guess. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Uh, what about you, Nate? So somebody... Uh... On this, uh, can I call this a dais? What is this? What are we? What am I looking at here? Uh, the roster. Somebody challenged me to take a look at presuppositionalism a little bit closer uh, recently, and his name rhymes with Eli. So I, <laughs> uh, I've, I have that on my to do list. I, I have not as of yet, but okay. um, I, I find my. So I have a kind of a signature method of communicating the Christian faith, and it, it's very friendly to presuppositional apologetics, because I think it's probably the easiest tool that anybody could pick up with minimal training, just put it that way. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm, I, I, I don't, I feel like, a, a I think Jay Warner Wallace called it a mixed martial art apologist kind of a th style where there's, there's, there's multiple methods, multiple tools that I use mm -hmm. when dealing with particular kinds of people. And I think my first question is, who am I dealing with, you know, and, and sort of float out the diagnostic questions to determine that first. And then I will, you know, utilize whatever it is I've picked up along the way. So yeah. um, I think the last book that I read <laughs> was a while back, the five views on apologetics or something, yeah. just stay fresh. Yeah. yeah. So. Cool. Very good. Uh, what about you, Matt? Well, uh, your mic's off again. <laughs> I'm writing. I'm typing. Um, <laughs> typing a list of heresies that are being spoken tonight. It's really getting along. It's just, <laughs> man, we got some talking to do. 
<laughs> no, I'm a, a an entrenched uh, presuppositionalist. I used to use evidence as a primary and uh, classical, you know, rationalism. But I learned that none of them can, in my opinion, can be justified without assuming the Trinitarian God, because all evidence is uh, due to the causal chain of God's initial existence, and all rationality and classical uh, stuff is due to the transcendent necessity, the laws of logic, which are re reflections of God's character and mind. So ultimately, neither of these can be justified unless we presuppose a Trinitarian God. Mm -hmm. And so I do that. And when I, I switched, so to speak, though I do use the others, uh, apologetics just became that much easier, particularly okay. with atheists and others, uh, you know, just ask them uh, the right questions. And and so I, I like it. And then when people say they, they don't approve of presuppositionalism, I say, why would you presuppose that? <laughs> I love how Matt uh, took the question, do you look at other methods and, and just started advocating oh, for presuppositionalism? <laughs> I forgot. Well, you know, you're, thank you. I forgot. I'm, I am old, probably the oldest one in here. I am 65. But uh, I know yeah, I study other stuff. <laughs> Nate's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> they just they hurt someone's feelings, not bust or bubble. <laughs> no, so, no, I, I will study other stuff. But um, as I've debated a lot with atheists and Eastern Orthodox and uh, Catholics, Mormons, whoever, Muslims, I've learned more and more. You've always got to get down to their basic assumptions, always get down to where they are and what justifies those basic assumptions. And one of the things I say is, is what must be true in order for whatever they say to be the case. And if they can't justify that assumption, then they don't have any case. And even with the Christians, we've got to justify everything by appealing to the necessity of the tri Trinitarian God. And incidentally, I was just finished a while back, a 500 word paragraph on the, on the Trinity and taught for five weeks on the doctrine of the Trinity and stuff like that. I love it. Uh, I think it makes sense. And so I'll use other methods, but they're all in subordination, in my opinion, to the ultimate uh, necessity of God's existence and the emanation and causal chain of all things related to him. So there you go. That makes okay. sense. Well, that's right, looking so quick. So basically, so basically you're a presuppositionalist, but you do talk about evidences, but you want to make, you try to make sure that the conversation gets to those foundations. Yeah. Evidence okay. is only that which uh, exists in a broader context. What mm -hmm. justifies the context? Okay. Uh, facts only exist in a broader context. What justifies the context, et cetera. Sure. sure. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, what about you, Tony? Yeah, I believe that we should definitely uh, examine other sides. I'm, I'm a presuppositionist as well, first and uh, reformed. And uh, but I do have uh, evidentialist arguments I use sometimes. I mean, we, we see the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians 15 appealing to the witnesses uh, who saw the risen Christ, the 500 brethren who saw him at one time, the appearance to Cephas, the appearance to James and the apostles, and so forth. And then saying, "Look, some of those 500, some of them uh, have fallen asleep." Uh, but they're still, you know, some witnesses are still alive, as if to say uh, you can check with them as well. They're available for uh, for for uh, their testimony. So um, I'm not saying that we have no place for evidentialistic arguments. I believe it has its place, but mm -hmm. I, I would agree with Matt that, in my opinion, it, it would be a secondary uh, form of argumentation. Um, so I would always encourage people to imitate, uh, you know, George Whitfield and John Wesley, even though they had some very strong differences, you know, Wesley being very strongly Arminian and, and George Whitfield being, of course, Calvinist. Um, they loved each other. They did have, they did have their strong disagreements, 
but it is possible for Calvinists and Arminians to get together. And it's mm -hmm. possible to have fellowship uh, with one another. And Amen. so uh, I think it's important that we realize that um, uh, we don't we don't have to uh, forfeit our, our convictions. But at the end of the day, we, we are brothers in Christ. Uh, we're trusting Christ alone for our salvation. And and we should always watch out that we, we don't major in the minors and, and minor in the majors. So mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. seems to be a, a, a continuous problem that Christians seem to experience. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. Did, I, did everyone get an opportunity to take a swing at that one? Okay. Yeah. So, so myself, I, um, here's the thing as a presuppositionalist, I often find myself disappointed, not in presuppositionalism, but in the lack of many presuppositional sources in dealing with specific data points, like specific evidences. So I think presuppositionalists do an awesome job in kind of the broader worldview, creating that context in which the evidence makes sense. Uh, but when, but when you establish that and people have specific questions on specific points, um, I think, um, at least in my experience, there's not a lot of presuppositional material out there that really goes into the nitty gritty of those specific points as do like my classicalist and evidentialist, uh, you know, friends, uh, do. So in that sense, um, I like to read classical and evidential literature, um, so as I, so that I can get some of that deep nitty gritty details that I can actually put within a presuppositional framework. And I often emphasize on my channel when we talk about this, that I do make a very important distinction between uh, the use of evidences and the utilization of evidentialism as a methodology. I'm, I don't use evidentialism, but I do think that evidentialists do a great job in the evidences specifically. And then I use that in my own studies. I draw from that and I try my best to contextualize that so as to be consistent with the methodology that I, that I hold to. Um, so I have very much benefited from the works of uh, William Lane Craig, uh, J.P. Moreland, uh, listening to debates, you know, Braxton Hunter. Uh, we, we've had great discussions, um, you know, even in our disagreements, but I've learned so much uh, from him um, and Michael Jones as well. He does an excellent job in his debates. I mean, I've, I've actually had him on a while back to talk about debates, uh, debating. And, um, you know, we disagree on important theological and apologetical issues, but I think he does an excellent job debating. And I've learned so much watching many of his debates. So if you're um, going gonna to keep complimenting. You should buy me a drink first. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a nice lemon water. <laughs> okay. Um, let me see here. So, okay. So next question. Uh, thank you for the super chat. Verum. this is specifically for inspiring philosophy. Uh, they're trying to, you know, here we go. we'll see how, how we can navigate some of these. It's questions. ready to rumble. Okay. Right. So first first of the first apologetics, I'm just reading it as it, it happens here. So the church fathers and the reformers were all young earth creationists. Were they all wrong? All right. And you feel free to answer that as it, in the way. Don't feel like you're limited in any way. And uh, no one's going to jump. On okay. You, go for it. Short answer. No. Long answer is it's complicated. Okay? okay. Isaac Newton was a young earth creationist and he was going on the best date at the time. This was before the advent of uh, geology. Uh, advanced astronomy, uh, paleontology, they were going on the best data they had. And so, no, they were not wrong, but because they were working with the best data. The thing is that now, shortly after uh, Calvin, we the rise of geology, people were taking very old earth views quite quickly. And by about uh, the 1800s, the spiritual geologists died out. And just about every expert in the field, it was basically an old earther at that point. So we go on the best data. It goes back to that great quote by St. Augustine, 
who said in matters that are obscure and far beyond our vision, even in such as we may find treated in Holy Scripture, different interpretations are sometimes possible without prejudice to the faith that we have received. In such a case, we should not rush in headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side of that. If further progress in the search of truth justly undermines the position, we too fall with it. So he's saying, look, sometimes progress is going to advance. Go back to the Galileo affair. And there's a lot of misconceptions about that. I don't have time to get into. But the critics of Galileo said, look, if he's right, we're just going to have to, we just, our interpretation of scripture is wrong and we will adjust accordingly. That's the way it works with science. So I think that needs to be kept in mind. Uh, and so that's what I would say with regards to that. I mean, we're not going to agree with everything the church fathers said. Most scholars don't agree with Justin Martyr thinking that demons were reading the Old Testament and then making the pagan religions to try to mimic it. Most scholars don't think that's really a good argument. Um, a lot of people don't agree with some of the stuff Tertullian said or some of the stuff that Origen said. That's okay. We have to agree with all the, the church fathers on every little detail. I don't think everyone here will have to say all the church fathers are scripture or, you know, perfect infallible authorities. No, I don't think anyone would say that. So just keep that in mind when going forward. I don't think we need to say that. And of course, the church fathers disagreed on how to interpret Genesis. I mean, Clement of Alexandria said that everything happened instantly and the days were metaphorical. Same with Augustine. Mm -hmm. Whereas Basil said the days were literal. It really depended based on church fathers. They didn't all even agree on how to properly interpret Genesis. Sure. All right. Thank you for that. All right. Now this next question, and thank you Ver Verum for the $10 super chat. Very much appreciate that. Um, next question, I suppose people may differ here, but feel free to answer it as, as, as honest and openly as, as you feel necessary. Uh, Nathan uh, asked the question, are Catholics Christians? Um, let's start with uh, Dr. Costa. What, what's yeah, your well, view on that? Yeah. Well, Catholics are Christians because the word Catholic means universal and global. And so I believe that all true Christians are Catholic. And I think the question is, are Roman Catholics Christians? Right. So I'm, I'm a former Roman Catholic. That doesn't mean I'm a specialist. Uh, but um, I hold to the view that if, if, you don't, um, if you don't subscribe to the gospel of grace, uh, as taught by the apostles and by the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe the words of Galatians 1, 6 to 9 is very pressing. That if anyone brings another gospel, any other gospel, other than the gospel that the apostles preached, let them be anathema, accursed. And it's very clear from studying Roman Catholicism, and we can include the Orthodox Church as well, that their definition of the gospel is not the same definition that the Reformers came to. Their understanding of the gospel, uh, justification was by faith alone in Christ. Uh, salvation is by grace alone without works. Mm -hmm. um, and so I believe the dividing line is the gospel. A lot of folks will say, but look, they, they believe in the Apostles' Creed. They believe in the Nicene Creed. That's true. But the gospel is the dividing line. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. And if you have another gospel, the scriptures bring down the anathema of God upon you. And the word anathema in Greek simply means to be under the divine curse of God. And so when I look at the Council of Trent and I look at Vatican I, when I look at Vatican II, the gospel that Rome is preaching is not the gospel of grace alone. In other words, they, they, it's not that they deny the, uh, the, the efficiency of grace. Of course, they'll say we need grace to be saved. The question is the sufficiency of grace. Is grace sufficient uh, in and of itself to bring about the justification of a sinner before a holy God? And so I believe the Roman Catholic Church, I mean, there's those two views that says, well, is it an apostate church with some... Uh, 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 right doctrines, or is it a false church with some true doctrines? I believe the Church of Rome has gone into apostasy. I don't believe I don't believe the preaching of the biblical gospel. 
And therefore, uh, I believe that it is incumbent on us to, to share the gospel with Roman Catholics and bring them into that grace. Sure. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, how about you, uh, Braxton? Where do you stand on, on this question? <clears throat> My um, pos official position is a bit dodgy, which is to say that there are safe Catholics. <laughs> he begins there, with that. <laughs> there are safe Catholics, there are safe Baptists, there are safe Methodists, and there are unsaved in all those categories as well. But that, but that is kind of the dodgy answer. Honestly, I have to tell you that when I was pastoring, I probably would have said, no, they're not. And then... Uh, uh, later on, I would have said, yeah, they are. And at this point, here's where I'm at. Um, I agree with Tony about Galatians, and there is very strong language from Paul there. Mm. And uh, obviously, we don't want to ever affirm the preaching of another gospel. Sure. And so that's where the conversation would have to go is to what extent is this another gospel and how how do we define that? And um I'm I'm honestly thinking through that right now. I'm well aware of the of where the furniture is in this discussion. It's just mm -hmm. that I, I'm not. I, it's a very important issue, and there's a lot at stake. And so, sure. um, I'd rather cautiously just say, "Listen, let me tell you what I understand the gospel to be, and let me tell you what I think a Christian is, and mm -hmm. let's let's do evangelism and or or whatever. Have a conversation." And if it if it seems to come if it seems clear to me or to them um, that this person has does hasn't ever trusted repented and placed their faith in Christ in the way that the Bible describes, then we should take it that way. So can I so can I piggyback on the question then? Just uh, so, so would you would you evangel would you try to evangelize a Roman Catholic? Not just not. Uh, spontaneously, it, I would talk to them just like I talk to anybody else mm -hmm. and pay attention. Okay. Because for me, because here's an important thing for me, I, I didn't say this at the beginning, but for me, apologetics, well, I did say this it, for me, the point is evangelism to reach people with the gospel That's message. Right. I'm not interested in it for entertainment value, although I do find it very entertaining or as a hobby, although I do have it as a hobby. I'm interested in it first and foremost. I'm an evangel. I'm an Ephesians 411 evangelist. First and foremost, apologetics is secondary and the only importance of it. And it's not always important. The only importance of it is is in helping people overcome roadblocks to evangelism. And so for that reason, um, when I'm talking to anyone, anyone, I'm, I'm listening to what they're saying and listening for subtle indications of where this conversation might need to go for me as a servant of the king in trying to reach people with the gospel. So mm -hmm. even if it's even if it's a Southern Baptist and I've been it was a Southern Baptist nine months before I was born, I'm listening, I'm evaluating what they're saying, and I'm asking questions. <laughs> I was gonna cut that there. Uh, what about you, Michael? How would you address this question? So I, I once wrote a great book called Handbook of Christian Apologetics many, many years ago. And it, it sort of, it convinced me that I think Catholics and Protestants are just talking a different language. Uh, when Catholics mean, or when Protestants mean salvation, they mean the initial regeneration stage. Or, and they, this is coming from their book, and they said that when Catholics are talking about salvation, they're including sanctification in that process. So their argument was is that we're all on the same page. We're just talking, we're just using the wrong terms, or we're defining terms differently. So when I say, are Catholics saved? I'm like, yes, there are Catholics that are saved. There are Protestants that are saved. There are Catholics that are not saved. There are Protestants that are not saved. I don't think we can judge based on labels. We judge based on the heart. We'll know them by their fruits. And ultimately, Christ is going to be the one who knows who's everyone is saved. Mm -hmm. Not just because we sit in a certain pew does that mean we're saved. 
It's much deeper than that. So I think there are people sitting in, sitting in Catholic pews that are saved and some that are not. Some are sitting in Protestant or evangelical or Orthodox pews are saved and not saved. Same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, what about you, Nate? Where do you stand on this question? I mean, it's hard to add to and Braxton's gone. Um, that's, <laughs> I scared him away. He got, he got raptured time. and we all got left behind. Got, oh no. <laughs> Is that the next question? Yeah, when rapture? Um, it's hard to add to what has been said because I would echo everything. I, mm -hmm. I think the only thing that I could probably, you know, um, offer in contribution is just to like reiterate the point that I think, uh, Tony was making about Galatians. If you go back and just look at Galatians, the whole letter, it's, it speaks to this problem that I actually think is a human problem. It's everyone's problem. Okay. Um, it's, it Catholics make this problem. Protestants have this problem as well. And it's this idea, Galatians 3, the biggest indictment, right? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's all of our problem. Uh, we always want to try to help God out somehow with our own, you know, frailty and, and human uh, uh, offerings. And it, it, it it's a recipe for disaster. We have to come back to, I like it. I like what Tony said, the gospel of grace. If you understand that you're saved, I, I think you do. If you, if you fully affirm the gospel, mm -hmm. you're saved. Okay. All right. And uh, Matt, uh, are Roman Catholics Christians? Not if they believe official Roman Catholic theology. Okay. Official Roman Catholic theology is antichrist flat out. Paragraph 2068 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church says you obtain salvation by faith, baptism, and the observance of the commandments. In paragraph 2036, it says that the natural law and observing the precepts of the natural law is necessary for salvation. Paragraph 2036. Paragraph 2070 says the Ten Commandments are a good reflection of the of the natural law. So the Roman Catholic Church denies and anathematizes out of the Council of Trent Canon 9, 23, 24, I believe it is. Uh, it anathematizes justification by faith alone in Christ alone. It adds, it requires works as a form of salvation. If you don't get it, you can't do it. You cannot be saved. It de deals with what's called condign merit, congruent merit, strict merit. We could talk about that. On my radio show, I regularly say that the Roman Catholic Church is the greatest gate of damnation of any religion on the planet because it's greater than Islam. Mm. Uh, it teaches a false gospel and it promotes idolatry. And uh, I automatically assume that any Roman Catholic I'm talking to is not a Christian. Okay. And <clears throat> I will defend that to the death Okay. about Roman Catholicism. And I'm not joking. Uh, it is, it is antichrist. So, so, so Matt, so you would say, so you, you would agree that there are people in the Catholic church that are saved, but yes. you would say official Roman Catholic teaching. So, so, so you yep. would agree in a sense what some of the, some uh, maybe what Michael said, and I think Braxton um, Braxton mentioned that there are people within the Roman Catholic church that are saved, but you yes. would, you would mm -hmm. highlight the fact that it's, it's the teaching itself, official, the official teaching that if you, if you knowingly mm -hmm. affirm the official teaching, you think that that uh, outright rejects what Absolutely. you understand to be the gospel. Okay. Absolutely. That's why I say official Roman Catholic theology. That's right. why I say that. Certainly, okay. there are there are Catholics who are uh, Christians, but there's lots of ways to show the problems of Catholicism. And mm -hmm. I have open, I have four 27-inch 4K monitors 
and I have my right, he album. ruled the world from his that special. <laughs> it looks simple, but he's shown me he's got like a master, like a motherboard yeah. thing going on there. That's right. Yeah, it's big stuff. <laughs> and I have my outlines on Catholicism, including the index and table of contents, is 189 pages. Okay. And I've written well over 100 articles on Catholicism. I've read their material. I've debated many of them. I've talked to hundreds of them over the years. Mm-hmm. And I am absolutely convinced, official. Roman Catholic theology is antichrist. It, it has works righteousness and it promotes idolatry in the form of Mary. And sometimes what I'll do on the net is uh, read what some of the official stuff is that Mary officially said. It, and when you read it, you go, "That's those are demons talking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, people don't realize how bad the Roman Catholic Church is in a lot of other ways, too. But we won't get into that now. But no, it's not Christian. Not okay. Officially. Well, thank you, Nathan, for that question. And thank you guys for sharing your perspectives there. Uh, Next question here. uh, How could I or someone philosophically break down or debunk panantheism? Thank you. That's an interesting question. Anyone want to take a stab at that one? That could can throw it out. Who wants to uh, define panantheism and refute panantheism? So there are different types of panantheism. I would say weak panantheism or palomite panantheism is entirely, it's within orthodoxy. It's not something that would be heretical. Uh, and in fact, there have been church fathers in the past that have advocated for that. I would say strong panentheism, like like Hegel, for example, would be a strong mm-hmm. panentheist, is a heresy because it tries to put like all of the created order within the divine essence of God, and that itself is going too far. Um, I think we need to keep in mind uh, you would simply have to point to things like um, within the created order. Uh, things like evil or is evil part of God's essence. And we would say, no, that is heresy. These kinds of things. Uh, You would also, this would be a better argument against pantheism, but you can, you know, Kalam or any cosmological argument requires a transcendent cause, something beyond the universe to cause it. Uh, Again, weak panentheism is consistent with that based on how it's defined and defended, but strong panentheism, I have, I think is a harder time getting away with that. The idea there's a transcendent cause because it sort of like makes the creator part of God. And so you can't, so cosmological arguments sort of refute that as well. Sure. That's how I would go about it. Okay. Anyone else have something to say about that? Yeah. I mean, that's what I was going to say. He's the creator, not the created thing. And Mike drew some important distinctions or uh, lines of distinction there. I, I just think that when you're talking about the created order and these sorts of things, if you run something like, let's say the Kalam, like he just said, it's where my, my mind went. We're talking, uh, we're talking about something uh, as you as you do the conceptual analysis, it's spaceless, timeless, non-material. Well, that's not the universe. And I think the argument gets you that, gets you those things, gets you those those values, and so that to me that rules out that rules out what he's calling strong um, panentheism. Hmm. Okay, I think we need to distinguish pantheism from panentheism, right? So pantheism, yeah. Pantheism means all is God or all is divine. So you see that in Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, for example, Eastern religions. Uh, panentheism means all is in God. That's 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 simply the, the the Greek rendering of that term. And you know, there's two indisputable facts in the Bible, isn't there? Number one, there is a God. Number two, you're not Him. And so Genesis 1.1 is very clear. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There's a sharp distinction between two categories, the category of creator and the category of the created. And the idea of panentheism, uh, like Michael was mentioning Hegel, uh, Hegel's philosophy argued that God was uh, uh, wrapped up into history and that God is evolving. And, And that has entered into theology through what's called process theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that teaches the same type of, of thing that 
in panentheism, basically the universe is the body of God. So the universe is his body. Um, and of course, the scriptures are very clear that, again, God is not his creation. God is trans. We, call about, we talk about transcendence, transtemporality. God is transtemporal, transcendent. Uh, God is infinite. Now, the incarnation uh, doesn't say that, that God entered into parts of nature, but that God took on a human nature. So that in the incarnation, God the Son takes on human flesh, becomes uh, united in his person, the divine nature and the human nature. Um, but of course, that does not entail panentheism. All right. Okay. So, so these types of of, of uh, words are words that 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 resonate from Eastern Eastern traditions and, and some uh, Greek thought uh, mm -hmm. among certain schools of philosophy. Okay. Thank you for that. Anyone else have anything to chime in before we move on to the next question? Okay. Uh, it sounds kind of a weird and abstract question, but you'd be surprised. You you know, I know people who say, hey, I was speaking with this person. I really, from an apologetics perspective, I don't have any idea how to respond to this person. He said he was a panantheist. You know, there are still panantheists running around. Uh, and um, yeah, you got to be ready to, to be able to interact with that. So thank you for that. Um, all right. We have a question from Kevin Harris. Kevin Harris. Uh, do you all believe in the immortality of the soul? Um, all right, let's see. How about Matt, if you'd like to go first? Oh, I'd love to. I've written, um, 192, 82, 182 articles dealing with, uh, annihilationism, conditionalism. The soul does continue after death. Uh, it is allowed to do so by God's sovereignty. Yes, it continues. We don't have a cessation of existence. We can go into that. I've written a lot on that, discuss it a lot, but that's my position right there. Okay. All right. Uh, what about you, Dr. Costa? Yeah, I believe in the immortality of the soul. Um, we need to be careful. A lot of folks think that when we say immortality of the soul, we're saying that we are, of, we, we share with God his immortal nature. And that's, that's, there's a, a very important distinction here. Um, we our, our immortality of the soul is derived from God. It's, it's given to us by God. It's not something that we intrinsically have. It's not part of our inherent nature. Uh, and so there is a continuity to the person, uh, which means that at death there is, there is, there is, a, there is a spiritual um, component of the human being that does continue to exist in a conscious uh, dimension. And but that is also we, we, we need to keep in mind the the resurrection, the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection of the flesh, of the body and so forth. And so we do believe that there will be a conjoining once again of that spiritual essence with the body uh, at the coming of Christ. OK, thank you, Nate. Uh, yeah, I'm not an annihilationist or what is it? The conditional immortality or something? Yeah, whatever. I'm not that. Um, and I, <laughs> He's I just, so nonchalant about it. I'm not that. Yeah, I'm not Next. that. I've, <laughs> okay. I've, I've not, um, be fully transparent. I'm not, uh, extremely versed in the arguments for, sure. um, annihilationism. I know they don't like that word. That's why I'll keep using it. But, um, you know, <laughs> I, uh, interacted with some of the arguments from Chris Date and I just, uh, I, I don't, I don't see it. Especially uh, Revelation, you know, um, the, the the smoke that comes up out of the city, the great sure, city sure, at the sure. end of Revelation. Um, you know, the, the well, never mind. Uh, I'm, I'm not an annihilationist. Okay. All right. Braxton? 
Yeah, so I teach a class on this at Trinity College and Seminary, and uh, there are passages that need to be taken into consideration for the annihilationist perspective. For example, it, on the question that was asked um, about immortality, 1 Timothy 6, 16 says in the New American Standard, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Also in Luke chapter 12, 4 and following, in Matthew chapter 10, it talks about not fearing the one who can destroy the body, but after that has no more that you can do, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so, uh, or uh, in Gehenna is actually the word there. So um, there are, I just want to present the, the position that there is data that has to be dealt with. And the data that has to be dealt with, um, I think when people first approach the subject of conditional immortality, what they say is, they think is, well, that, of course, that's crazy. I've, I've heard in church all my life, eternal mm -hmm. torment and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And then oftentimes what they see is they think often the, the thinking is, well, the, you know, if you just read the Bible, it's, it's pretty clear. The conditionalist wants to say, or the annihilationist, as Nate says, wants to say that, uh, no, actually, the plain reading in many of these cases seems to support the conditionalist perspective. Destroy, mm -hmm. decay, uh, uh, dead. You know, th these all seem like like terms that mean sure. dead or annihilated or something like that. Um, but there are passages that are strong, like the one mentioned from Revelation. And so I think those have to be borne out. Here's what I've done since uh, about 2000 nine in my preaching ministry because i've preached in church did revivals sunday through wednesday mm -hmm. uh, for 40 weeks out of the year for most of those years and what i decided was when i came to the subject of hell if i came to the subject of hell what i would just say is look here's what jesus says in mark chapter 9 he says it's so bad that you want to cut off your arm not to go there it's so bad you want to cut <laughs> off your leg not to go there it's so bad that you better gouge out your eye not to go there where the flame doesn't die or the, where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched and there's that refrain again and again Nobody can fault me for saying, here's what Jesus said. And then I say about what Jesus said. So what does that mean? Well, for many people, it sounds like it means that this is uh, an eternal conscious existence that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And 10,000 years from now, if someone opened the door to hell and said, you'll be free in another million years, there might be some hope in hell, but there's no hope. It'll never happen forever and ever and ever. On the other hand, someone might say, well, perhaps something else is going on here. And this is talking about uh, looking at the whole scope of scripture um, imagery, or it's talking about something to, uh, to do with the Valley of Hinnom or whatever else. Uh, but I, I, so I say, so what I say to churches is I, I read what Jesus says. I say, here's what Jesus says. Now you might say to me, yeah, but pastor or preacher or evangelist or whatever, um, you might say, yeah, but what if that doesn't mean what it sounds like it means? What if it means something else like that you just die or you're judged and you die? If it means something like that, what you can't get around is what Jesus is saying here is whatever you think hell is. One thing Jesus is saying here is you don't want to go to hell. That's the bottom line. And I always make sure to make both of those things clear, sure. because while I'm aware on the on the one hand that there are a lot of people who have come to faith and God has used the preaching that involves eternal conscious torment. There are other people who have come to faith after becoming aware of annihilationism. And for some reason, things sunk into place in Scripture better for them. Mm -hmm. So. Where am I at on it? Where I'm at is I try to present both options when I'm preaching mm. and because I think this is another area where I think what's at stake is so important and I don't have Cartesian certainty about mm -hmm. this. So I'm going to say, here's what Jesus says. Yeah. So you, so you would highlight also the importance of 
like with, with regardless of what perspective you hold, there are script various scripture texts that both sides really need to come to grips with and grapple with. Just like with the Calvinism debate, yeah. Right. Sure. And it's not Absolutely. like the annihilationists or those who affirm eternal, eternal conscious torment don't have answers to those. They do have mm -hmm. answers. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that that is, I think when I think many people look at that debate and they think, oh, well, that's just because those people can't handle the concept of hell sure. or whatever sure. issue it is. When you get into it, there's a better case there than I think people are aware of. Okay. That doesn't mean it's right, but there's a better case that can be made. Sure. Can I quickly right. interject, Eli? Just very quickly. Yeah. I did yeah. debate Chris Date on uh, Chris Arnson's Iron Sharpens Iron program. So if anyone's interested, just go to uh, Iron Sharpens Iron, do a search, Tony Costa versus Chris Date. I debated Chris Date. Uh, there was a two-part debate that we did uh, week, uh, just a week apart. So oh. anyone who's interested, check it out. That's exactly what we're debating, that very same question. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely check that out. Um, Michael, where do you stand on, on this uh, question here? I'm, I'm pretty agnostic on the whole situation because I'm always like, well, we've not died yet, so we don't know. Uh, I, I tend to lean towards what I call like eventual annihilationism, that hell is the process of annihilationism, but I'm not going to defend it. Um, if someone right. is like convinced of ECT, fine. Um, I also say I am a hopeful universalist because I would really, really like that to be true. But I just I just don't see a lot of good evidence for it. But, I, you know, I won't debate that either because I want it to be true. But, you know, right. it's one of those things like. You know, sure. I'm more interested in why people go to hell and how we prevent that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you for sharing that. Um, okay. So here's another question here. I think this, for some reason, this question just seems like a question to ask Michael. It seems like you <laughs> would know this. So uh, is Paul Seeley correct? I have no idea who Paul Seeley is, but is Paul Seeley okay. correct in his analysis of the solid nature of the rakia? So I got a good friend who's a scholar named Ben Stanley. I, I knew it. I knew that. I knew he would be able to answer that one. Go, go yeah. ahead. Uh, so yes, it's very likely that in the ancient Near East, they thought of the rakia as a solid dome. Uh, does that mean God thought of it? No. For the same reason that when we talk about sunrise and sunset, we don't mean the sun is literally rising and moving through the sky and then going through the underworld at night. We don't think that we just use basic terminology. Uh, but yeah, everyone in the ancient Near East sort of looked at it as a solid dome. Uh, but again, scripture does not explicitly state it is because it's focusing on theology. There's a place in Proverbs where it says that, you know, my inner, my inner being will rejoice when you, when you speak good on your lips and the actual word there is kidneys because they actually thought emotions were in the organs. So they actually say my kidneys will rejoice. Okay. But that's sort of, it's just like saying, you know, believe in Jesus with all your heart. I don't mean the yeah. thing that pumps blood. I mean, your innermost being. So let's just make sure we understand the differences here. Okay. They, they may have thought that, uh, but God certainly didn't think that, even though they may have been using the same terminology. God is just saying the sky. You know that thing you guys all know of the sky? That's thing up there. But it doesn't actually okay. have to think it has the same definition. But yeah, I would refer you to Ben Stanhope has got a good video on his channel and explaining why people in the ancient years thought that. And yeah. the evidence does support that they did think it. But that does not affect biblical theology. So would you say, Michael, that we need to make an important distinction between what the Bible records, what people believed, and what the Bible actually teaches? There's an important exactly. distinction there. So, so exactly. that when somebody says, oh, you, the, but your Bible teaches flat earth, you know, which is a topic you'll be going on uh, Dr. Costa's show to talk about. And, and you'll, you'll say, hey, listen, that's what many people might have believed. Even some of the biblical authors might have believed something along those lines. But there's the difference between what a particular author personally believed and what that culture believed and what the Bible is actually teaching. Is that an important distinction yeah. to make? Yeah, I did a video about maybe two years ago called The Ancient Cosmos, Cultural Context of the Biblical World, and I talk mm -hmm. about it in there. And I use an analogy. Let's say we were at a time machine, and we went back to the the uh, ancient Egypt, and we were like, look, as the sun, the sun is going to rise tomorrow, and when the sun rises, you're going to see an army approaching mm -hmm. from the east. Okay. okay. 
here's the thing. Okay. Did I lie to the Egyptian Pharaoh? Well, no. Well, I said the sun is going to rise and he literally thought the sun moves through the sky, but you and I do not think the sun rises. We understand the earth rotates. Mm -hmm. I didn't lie to him. I'm talking about something else. I'm just using common language to explain right. what I'm trying to get across. God can do the same thing. Sure. Thank you for that. Um, our next question here is Mer Black. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm Mer, Mer. <laughs> okay. Now this is another panantheism question, but I'm going to kind of break this apart and maybe we could address something that wasn't addressed in our prior question relating to panantheism. The question here is how can we debunk pan uh, panantheism? I think that was addressed for someone struggling with new age neo-gnostic teachings. Um, I'm going to shoot Matt, shoot for Matt Slick for this. I know you've, you've dealt with some new age uh, folks before. Um, how would you interact with a proponent of New Age? How would you engage apologetically with someone who holds to that perspective? Well, New Age philosophy is evolving and it's merging with neo-Gnosticism and there's kind of a new thing going on. But New Age philosophy basically says that all is divine and you are ultimately divine, divine consciousness. You get in tune to the divine consciousness. You create your own reality by words and the power of words and tuning with uh, frequencies, with energies, with various things. Uh, this is moving into the new apostolic reformation as well. It's already in the positive confession movement. So what you do, mm -hmm. or at least what I do with them, is I always ask uh, anybody in that situation, I ask them diagnostic questions. What do you believe? Uh, I, I won't go as direct like this. These are the presuppositions I'll work with or the questions. And then you filter them out nicely, you know, but, uh, but I want to find out what their ultimate assumptions are, what justifies those assumptions. How do they determine what truth is? What's the source of their truth and things like this. I w always want to get down to that because people are going to have different answers to those. And then depending on what answers there are, you just go that direction and then you undermine their basis for uh, truth, morality, knowledge, and things like that. And then I point them to the resurrection of Christ, the evidence of the resurrection of Christ as being the proof that what he said is true, et cetera. But uh, so it just depends because apologetics in this kind of a situation is a lot art and a lot logic. And you need evidence, you need rationality and and um, move forward and stumble along the way and pray and just keep going. And, and God uses it all. All right. Thank you. Anyone want to add to that at all? All right, let's continue on here. Okay, so we have another um, methodological, apologetic methodology question um, here. Thank you, Jacob, for your question. For all, I think you would all agree that God can use any method to save. All right. Uh, so what is your best explanation as to why your method is most God-honoring? Um, you guys could share your thoughts. Maybe you can kind of uh, just remind people what method you hold to and, and maybe some biblical reasons or principles that you that you have for why you hold them, if, if, if that's where you're coming from. Um, so why don't we go with, um, well, let's go with Nate first. I mean, I think I said this, but I don't have a, a, I don't hold to a method. Um, okay. and so, you know, ah, I know the art of fighting without fighting. <laughs> <He's> got... <laughs> that's right. There you go. Um, you know, I, I, but I would advocate that people are well versed in your scripture, and you are studying not only like what the scripture teaches, but also the model of how um, Jesus, for example, communicates in the scripture. How, and I think uh, Matt uh, spoke on this, but how the Apostle Paul speaks to people in the scriptures and yeah. try to incorporate that model in the way that you communicate. And so, you know, doing a study purely on Acts 17, just to see how Paul spoke at the Areopagus to the, you know, 
to the uh, to the Athenians there. I think that would be really great. Uh, you know, if you if you look at so Philip actually comes to mind. Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. If you remember this in Acts, Philip is is well. That's a whole other conversation. He's transported by the Holy Spirit and uh, gets plopped down and sees you know a eunuch reading something. What's the first thing that Philip does? He asks him a question. He's like, you know, do you understand what you're reading? Um, and that usually kind of trades along the way that I would advocate people communicate, particularly in today's day and age, today's kind of culture, is if we go in in a more Socratic method, um, I think that we're covering more ground in this kind of an environment, this kind of disputational, everybody's angry at each other. And then if you say something I don't like, I cancel you kind of environment. If we go in asking certain kinds of questions, leading questions that are designed to get to the content of the gospel, you know, which I agree with uh, Braxton is the ultimate point. It is the ultimate goal, right? Fulfill the Great Commission. Um, I think that's going to get you uh, really close to, uh, you know, how you want to how you want to communicate the gospel, how you want to make disciples. Because I would even add an element to what Braxton said earlier, which is the end goal is not to evangelize. The end goal is to make disciples, and that is the Great Commission. So. Mm-hmm. If you if you come to somebody, especially a stranger in the, in the style of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and you seek to ask questions, um, you're you're building rapport, you're building relationship with somebody, um, you're you're showing them that you care about them, and they probably will reciprocate. And what's going to happen is that initial rapport could develop by the power of the Holy Spirit into a discipling relationship later. And so that's that's what I would say. Okay. All right. Thank you. Anyone else? Braxton. Go ahead, Tony. No, go ahead, Braxton. Uh, I was just going to say, um, yeah, Acts 17, let's go there. I, I think everyone sees their apologetic methodology in, in Scripture somewhere, or else they shouldn't have that uh, apology if they can't defend it from Scripture or show the principles are taught in Scripture or something or some example of it. And in Acts 17, when I look there, I do see an approach that's very much similar to the one that, that I think I employ as a classical apologist like Michael is. A classical apologist, for those that don't know, I think most of your viewers are interested in these things, so they probably know, but um, a classical apologist is someone who shows that first there is a God, and second, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Um, and so that's typically how it goes. And sure. uh, the only difference between that and a and in the, in the terminology of the distinctions, an, an evidentialist apologist and a classical apologist, they're both evidentialists in the sense that presuppositionalists mean it. But the evidentialist apologist is just a one step. He's just showing that um, that God raised Jesus from the dead or that Jesus is in some other way divine. Mm-hmm. But the classical shows both. Well, I look at Acts 17 and I see Paul showing up and he argues that there is one God who made everything. All right. And even reasons that they have an altar to the one known God and whether that uh, why they had that or whether that was a, an altar that fell over and they set it up and didn't know. So they said unknown God or whatever, How whether they set it up like most preachers say that in case we forgot one, here it is. Whatever it is, we found evidence that they had such things um, altered to an unknown God, the Temple of Pergamum, I think. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the bottom line is, then he goes on to, to argue, and using some of their own their own stuff from their culture, he goes on later to argue that that uh, that God was going to judge the world through a man that he raised from the dead. And of course, then Paul gets cut off, right? Because the, the audience goes off the rails. But And the point that. of that is, I see there God's existence, God raised Jesus from the dead those two things being very important and an evangelistic call because he tells them that they need to repent because of this. So I think, uh, I think uh, I see it there. Um, and, and I have found it to be very helpful when I, when I approach people, I ask them, first of all, 
I, I let them talk. I, I asked them, first of all, in a one-on-one conversation, um, what, how do you understand the big questions of life? What happens when, uh, how do we get here? What's the meaning of life if there is one? And what happens when we die? And let them talk. And they talk and talk and talk. And then I say, okay, well, what do you understand the Christian message to be? And they're going to say it in a paragraph. And if it ends with something like, and then you get 72 virgins, well, I know they've missed something somewhere about the Christian message. <laughs> and so then at that point, what, what I'll do is I'll say, okay, well, you're right. There are some Christians who think whatever they said, mm-hmm. but or some people. But um, I'd like to share with you what I understand the Bible says. And okay. the reason is I want the gospel up front. I want the evangelism uh, to be set the stage for that really soon. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to know what they believe. And mm-hmm. so, but, but I move that way because I think I see Paul doing that. Sure. Okay. Uh, Dr. Costa, you were going to say something yeah, and then Matt, I'll, maybe you can share your thoughts as well. Yeah, I was just going to say, he, you know, Hebrews 11 says that, that he who comes to God, he who comes to God must believe that he is mm-hmm. and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So uh, my approach is a top-down approach. I begin with God. I think everything must begin with God. Um, logic itself uh, only functions because it's rooted in the mind of God. It's rooted in the triune God. Um, uh, mathematical truths uh, exist because they're rooted in the triune God of Scripture. And so in Acts 17, uh, Paul begins with God. And and if you notice, he, he presupposes uh, God exists. God created the universe. God has not just created, but he's the sovereign God who has carved the boundaries of all the nations and placed the limitations of where those nations should inhabit. And then Paul moves on to speak of providence, how God has provided food and he's given the rain and so forth and so on. And and, and in, in essence, he's, he's basically refuting uh, Epicureanism and Stoicism. Those are the two main philosophies he's actually combating there. Uh, and then um, he, he, he sums it up with the gospel message. And so he begins with God, his providence, his right as creator, and then he ends with God's uh, right as judge, that God is going to judge the world. And he's evidenced that by raising, he's appointed this man whom he raised from the dead. Um, And the response is just much the same today, is some uh, accepted, some laughed, uh, and some uh, were willing to hear more. Uh, Mm -hmm. And all we know is there was only one convert, Dionysius. Uh, the Arapagite was the only convert that Paul seemed to make. But but uh, if you if you look at Acts 17 very carefully, I think you could see a very good case there for presuppositionalism. Uh, Paul begins with God, and he works his way down. Sure. So and if on- anyone's in- if anyone's interested in expansion of that, Greg Bonson in his book Always Ready. If you do come from a presuppositional perspective, uh, Greg Bonson has an entire section there. Um, on Acts 17, where he argues for a presuppositional approach in Acts 17. But I know, folks, obviously that's a contested uh, passage there. Uh, Matt, where do you stand on this question here? Well, the only method of salvation I'm aware of is faith in Jesus Christ and what he did in the cross. So that's the method I'm aware of. But when I preach uh, the gospel to the unbelievers, I, I do the uh, the law of God first, the gospel of Christ second, and the cost of discipleship third. So law, gospel, uh, cost, okay. but you got to have faith in the risen Lord, God in yeah. flesh, died on the cross, and that's it. That's what it comes down to. All apologetics, I view, is subservient to that message of the gospel. Now, I don't care what approach, how you get, you get to that place where you can get them to the cross, and then mm-hmm. in between them and God, uh, I'd like to say that we're in, um, we're in sales, not production. All right. All right. Thank you for that. If I can just share my thoughts here um, for all uh, for all, I think 
you would agree that God can use any method to save. So what is your best explanation as to why? All right. So uh, this is, uh, again, so we all hold to different perspectives and we have different interpretations of various passages to defend our perspective. If our reason for using our methodology is primarily, you know, based upon biblical principles, I think it's a, not a good idea for people in the whole apologetic methodology debate to uh, support their view simply by proof texting. Um, so I don't think that the the Bible is an apologetics handbook in 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 the sense that it gives you a list like point one two three four five. I, I don't like to isolate specific passages. For example, there was one um, question that, that I skipped over because I want to get to the super chats next, but um, where it talked about can you walk through this passage and show either presuppositional or evidential? I don't think that's the right way to do it because I think the reason why many of us hold to our perspectives is because we want to consider what all the Bible has to say in terms of not just explicit text of scripture, but principles. I think there are principles of scripture that are not necessarily explicit text, but principles that someone can draw out and apply that to their method. Maybe they think this principle here applies to, or, you know, represents their method better. So for myself, as a presuppositionalist, I happen to think that biblically speaking, there are principles that I think are more in line. Presuppositionalism captures those principles better than the methodologies, the other methodologies from my perspective. And of course, you have the differing uh, views there. All right. Are there anyone else, anyone else that wants to uh, uh, touch on that before I move on to some of the super chats? I don't know why anyone would want 72 virgins because then there's, that means you get 72 mother-in-laws, right? So that's. Oh, yeah. I never thought of that. That's, I'm a clown. It's like my dad, my dad was preaching one night and he said that Solomon had 700 wives and this guy in the back said, all right. And he's like, yeah, but he had 700 mother-in-laws. Yep. <laughs> That'd be a lot of sandwiches. <laughs> Dad jokes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Let's get to some super chats here, guys. Thank you so much for the super chats. Michelle Marie uh, asked the question, what do you all think about Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man, becoming an Orthodox Christian? Just before I throw that out to everyone else, um, I did have Hank Hanegraaff on the show. If you look through the old um, episodes, we talked about his conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy. I also had um, Tony Costa uh, share his thoughts as well. Um, as to what he thought about um, Hank Hanegraaff's conversion. Um, and so you guys can look at the older episodes there um, if you want to take a look at that. All, all of those were excellent conversations. I actually had the um, the privilege to actually meet with Hank Hanegraaff at the Bible Answer Man uh, radio station. And I have to say, I, w I was we sat in his office and talked for three and a half hours uh, on Eastern Orthodoxy and, and what the gospel is. And it was one of the best conversations I've had. We disagreed, obviously, as I come from a reform perspective. And I thought, I think there are important dividing lines, but, um, I really appreciated the conversation and, and it, it, we covered a lot of important areas. So I do think this is an important question. I know some folks might have different perspectives as to what they think about the, um, significance of his conversion, but they do cover very important theological differences. So, uh, with that said, uh, does anyone want to share their thoughts first about, uh, what do you think of Hank Hanegraaff's conversion? Yeah, I'd be glad to comment. Okay. First John 2.19, they went out from us because they never were of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained. So he showed his true colors as not being truly regenerate. The Eastern Orthodox Church does not teach justification by faith alone. It denies a substitutionary atonement. It teaches what's called theosis and the necessity of getting involved with the energies or the graces of God that gradually change you, by which you then are adopted in the family through baptism and chrismation and various things. And then you gradually manifest salvation, no justification, but salvation 
through your efforts and your works as you're conformed more to Christ likeness. So you can never say you're justified. You can never say you're saved. In other words, you have to go through a process in order to get to that place of theosis, deification, where you become God, but you're not divine. And then you can obtain salvation through that. This is what Eastern Orthodoxy teaches. And that is heretical. How can any true Christian who understands Romans 4, Romans 3, 28, Romans 4, 1 through 6, uh, Galatians 2, 16, go through varying verses and then say, yeah, that uh, it's a, salvation is a process that you obtain through participating in the graceful energies of God that changes you more like Jesus. And you become justified. You become saved over the process. So that's an apostate doctrine. And I don't understand why he would uh, do that, except to uh, go back to Scripture and say they went out from us because they never were of us. If they had been of us, well, they would have remained. That's okay. my view. All right. Anyone else want to share their thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to say that I, I, I think Hank should be called the Orthodox Answer Man, um, not so much the Bible Answer Man. And for the same reason I mentioned earlier, the Orthodox Church, like the Roman Catholic Church, denies the gospel of grace. It does not believe we're saved by grace alone. It believes that you're saved by good works and by merit, by baptism and so forth. Uh, we also have the problem with iconography. They they will claim they're not worshiping these icons, these images, but the, the language they use, you know, veneration versus dulia versus latra, these are all really arbitrary terms that have no support in scripture whatsoever. And, and of course, you have uh, the, the Orthodox Church also anathematizes all other churches. So in the 17th century Council of Jerusalem, the Orthodox Church made it very clear that the Roman Church is heretical. Uh, all the Protestant churches are heretical. And unless you're in the Orthodox Church, you are lost. Now, Hank Hanegraaff doesn't talk about that, but that is official Orthodox Church doctrine. So my main concern here, because uh, I know a lot of Eastern Orthodox friends, and that includes others in the Orientalist churches, the Coptic Church, the Assyrian Church of the East, sometimes called Nestorian, uh, the Copts, and so forth. Um, they're not trusting Christ alone for their salvation. They're looking for, for intercession from Mary, from the saints. Uh, they're looking for uh, merit by their good works. And once again, uh, what does the Apostle Paul say? That those of you who think you can be justified by the law, uh, you have fallen from grace. Christ is of no effect to you. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that was a very sad occasion. Um that Hank, Hank, Hank Hanegraaff went back into the, or went into the Orthodox Church. And that's why I've cautioned people uh, from, from listening to, to Hank. Okay. Anyone else want to share their thoughts? And Just, don't, uh, don't, don't hesitate. I, I promise, I promise uh, uh, you're free to share your thoughts. No one will jump on you. I wanted to hear, I wanted people to hear the differing perspectives and they can make up their own mind as to who they think is answering the question in line with what they think are the real issues. So please don't, don't hesitate. You know, no one's going to jump on you. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, I used to listen to Hank Hanegraaff back before that transition. Mm -hmm. Thought it was great. Uh, enjoyed the show. Um, but uh, I don't get it. I just yeah. don't get it. I'm not as knowledgeable about Eastern Orthodoxy um, as others here, perhaps. But I, I just, I, from what I do understand, I don't see how he got there. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Anyone else before we move on to another super chat? Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, guys. Uh, Alexander, thanks again for your $4.99 uh, super chat. Um, here we go. Yeah. Hold on. I got to put my, my, uh, my calm face on. We're all here to share our thoughts. Okay. 
I promise I won't make a response video after this. I'm totally <laughs> kidding. All right, Alexander Wright, uh, thanks for your super chat. Uh, he says, I would love to know Michael Jones' comments on why he dislikes presuppositional apologetics so much. I thought this was one of the best views to use. Uh, so, and feel free to just be as brutally honest as you'd like. We all know we come from different perspectives. And so feel free to share your thoughts um, on this question. I mean, if you want me to be brutally honest, I will be brutally honest. Go for uh, it. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I just, I do not, from talking with atheists in private, seeing their hangouts, this, this to them, this, they find this the least convincing. I don't think it's appropriate for the culture. I don't think it has a strong, and I use that word, and I mean, I think you could make a biblical basis for it, but I don't think you can make a strong biblical basis for it. Mm. I think the most biblical basis would be using an evidential or classical approach. Uh, and personally, once again, I, I would much rather be doing apologetics than talking about how to do apologetics. Uh, I Classical approach has been working great for me. I'm getting testimonies at minimal once a month from that. If it ain't broke, don't fix it idea. So I'm going ahead with that. Uh, but again, I, I just, you say that. <laughs> I mean, if it ain't if broke, don't working, fix it. <laughs> it's, it's working. And I like doing apologetics. I don't like yeah. talking about apologetics. I, I don't feel presuppositionalism is entirely intuitive. I feel like precepts have to spend a lot of time explaining what they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, it just doesn't really, it doesn't, people sort of hear at the surface level understanding of precept uh, and they go, what, wait, tell me more. I don't get it kind of thing. And that people have to spend a lot of time explaining what they're doing. Whereas the classical approach, I think just fits more with the intuitive nature of how humans are going to think and how they're going to go for it. Um, and again, I take, I take my classical approach from biblical passages, like in Acts 17, where Paul appeals to the philosopher Aratus to make his point or the, the, uh, Matthew 6, where Jesus says, look, if you want to know how your father loves you, consider the lilies of the fields or the birds of the air, appealing to the natural order of things, taking evidence and bringing it in to sort of teach you things, or the contest with prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal, using evidence to sort of make his case. I mean, I could go to places in Deuteronomy as well. It's just, I think this is the most biblical approach. I think you can make a biblical case for precept, but I think it is not the most biblical approach. I think it is the most effective, especially in our culture today. I don't think precept as nearly as effective, but again, I'm coming from my experience. I'm coming from what I have seen works hand to hand. I have coming from conversations where I'm talking with atheists and I'm really trying to understand them. I'm really trying to get to their level because I want to be a good witness to them and precept to them. They find to be the least convincing time and time again. And I don't want to use something that is not going to engage the culture. As Paul said, I become like all things to all men. I to like those under the law. I become like those under the law. Okay. Well, I'm going to enter into the culture to try to find the best way to win as many people as I can. And I think the classical approach has always been the best to do that, especially in today's culture. Sure. All right. Thank you for that. I think I did a good job. I didn't. Uh, okay. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> I didn't think so too much. All right. I'm sure, I'm sure folks from the presuppositional side, um, can tell now again. I, me personally, I don't, I don't use presuppositional apologetic methodology simply because I see it work. I do. I am convinced that it that it that it's based on biblical principles. But I, I, I hear what you're saying. Does anyone want to speak to that in terms of uh, maybe um, sure. our our fellow presuppositionalist uh, Tony Costa, Matt Slick? If you want to share your thoughts. Um, um, yeah, I'd like to just jump in and add a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are different levels of apologetics. And uh, what I've found is I won't use advanced presuppositional apologetics if I'm talking presuppositions uh, or the necessary preconditions for intelligibility mm -hmm. or universals, the one and the many issue. That gets more advanced stuff. Sure. Just to find out where they're at. You know, for the basics, and I'm not knocking anybody. 
for the basics, I use evidence. Look, Jesus rose from the dead. Often yeah. I'll be in a room with atheists and um, I can give all these arguments. You know, I can talk about the nature of presuppositions or propositions being truth bearing entities. And I can say, but you know what? Jesus rose from the dead. And I just point back to that a lot, you know, because that's what's that's what it comes down to. No one's going to be convinced by my presuppositional argumentation of logic or anybody else's. God has to grant them repentance. Second Timothy 225. He's got to open their mind to receive the scriptures. Luke 245. He's got to grant that they believe. Philippians 129. That belief's got to be in Christ. John 629. You know, and I can go on. And so I use what's necessary for the time. But I always have that sword of presuppositionalism uh, as we go up and up to to get to it. Yeah. And I'll use it in different levels as well. And uh, but I, I'm with, you know, I'm with them. Sure. You know, hey, we're out there witnessing yeah. resurrection of Christ. Keep it sure. simple. Absolutely. Now, I resonate very much. I resonate very much with what Michael said, of course, coming from a presuppositional perspective myself. I think when we start always talking about presuppositions, there's a lot of explaining to do because a lot of people don't really know. Like, well, what are you talking about? Uh, but again, that is not essential to the presuppositional methodology and its application. Uh, you know, For instance, there's nothing anti-presuppositional about talking about specific evidences and talking about that first, sometimes not even getting to the presuppositions. I want to read a quick quote. This is from Cornelius Van Til, who um, actually addresses this very point. He says, quote, this does not imply that we must always and in every instance bring in the discussion of authority, the presuppositions, at the outset of every argument with those we seek to win for Christianity. This may frequently be omitted if only we ourselves do not fall into the temptation of thinking that we can stand on neutral ground with those who hold to a non-Christian position. So Van Til would warn Christians to avoid neutrality and autonomy in the way that we argue, but it's not necessary that we always talk about the issue of authority and presuppositions and things like that. You know, even Van Til said himself, there are some contexts in which he finds it essential to go into the historical arguments for the resurrection. Yeah. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I resonate with what Michael says that a lot of people online, a lot of presuppositionalists will just ad nauseum talk about presuppositions and worldview without addressing some of the specific questions and objections that people address. So um, I think um, I would make the distinction of um, how people use presuppositionalism versus what presuppositionalism is itself as a methodology. And I think there's sometimes a disconnect there, but those are, that's my, my two thoughts. Anyone I will, else? I will just, that? I'll just say this. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Works for you. Fine. Just, <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I don't prefer it. I like the, what I'm doing and I would like prefer to do apologetics the way I do it. Works. Sure. All right. Yeah. Anyone else want to chime in? I would just say it's, it's not an either or I do believe it's both end, mm -hmm. uh, but I, but I would place more emphasis on presuppositional uh, apologetics. But at the end of the day, I think we can all agree in this, unless the Holy Spirit uh, converts the heart, unless the Holy Spirit changes the heart, unless the Holy Spirit, uh, God takes away that stony heart and, and puts a, a heart of flesh in its place, uh, unless salvation is of the Lord, it is God's work. And, and we're just instruments. We're just broken vessels that God uses. We're crooked sticks that God uses to make straight lines. And so uh, I think we need to understand at the end of the day, this isn't the, you know, the Joel Austin version of apologetics, step one, two, three. At the end of the day, if the spirit of the Lord does not do his work, if he does not change the heart, um, unless he opens their eyes, they will not see. Unless he opens their ears, they will not hear. You know, one, one thing that I think it, it comes up a lot in our classes at Trinity with new apologetic students 
is uh, who are who are reformed and who love presuppositionalism is when we're talking through this, I always tell them, I want you to pick the uh, apologetic approach that complements your doctrinal positions and things like that. Um, and, and that's the important thing. But, you know, when it comes to evidentialism, I always hear from my Calvinist brothers, God uses means, right? The, the Holy Spirit uses means, right? The preaching of the gospel is a means. And what is a good apologetic presentation but a proclamation of the gospel in uh, a certain way. It, it should include the gospel. If it doesn't, you haven't done apologetics in the manner that I think is important. I don't know that you've done biblical apologetics. And so um, so I think that's, a, that's um, a really important thing is to get to that point. I think I was going somewhere else with that. Oh, yeah. So God uses means. So if God uses means uh, like the preaching of the gospel, why can't he use the preaching of the gospel? That includes instead of perhaps illustrations or something mm -hmm. arguments and evidence reason things like that uh the holy spirit i believe can use that can use those things uh in that way and i think my presuppositional friends here think that he can too uh and even within their presuppositional approach that's right all right Thank i think i that. need to uh tell everyone that uh the moment that tony mentioned joel austin my mullet grew three inches um so just for the record somebody online said that john frame is a superior precept over van till does anybody want to? Uh, a superior? I mean, if if Cornelius Van Til is considered the father of presuppositionalism, I mean, how do you outdo the uh, the father of presuppositionalism? I would argue in favor of John Frame in this way, that John Frame by far is a better communicator. Um, if you could grab the golden nuggets in the writings of Van Til, you will benefit greatly. Um, but you need to dig. And it can be very difficult when reading through Van Til. John Frame is a very clear writer, and I think he's expanded a lot on what Van Til uh, started. Um, and I think uh, Greg Bonson probably would have overshadowed John Frame's work if he had lived longer. Um, but I think um, his followers, Van Til's followers, have done a great, uh, a better job at communicating the various points that he had. Um, so in, in, in the sense of communication, I think yes. In the sense of... Um, just originality of thought and, and what he was scratching in terms of the important philosophical issues of his day and the importance of presuppositions and um, things like that. I think Van Til um, is rightly called the godfather of, uh, of presuppositionalism, right? Um, that, those are my thoughts there. Can I add a little something? Sure. Yeah, go for it. John Frame was my professor in seminary and I used to go over his house and we would just talk. Yeah. The guy was nice and he was polite and he was sincere. And I was incredibly impressed with his, with his ability to take complicated things, just mm -hmm. like you said, break it down. So you could go, oh, I yeah. get it. That's right. what he was super gifted at. Sure. Yeah. Braxton. Yeah. So I wanted to add something to that, too. I, I have a presentation that I gave at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and a few other places in which I quote frame talking about e apologetics and evangelism and the importance. I just thought of this while I was sitting here. I also have a quote here from Matt Slick in that uh -oh. same presentation that I delivered there at New Orleans. And here's the quote. Nevertheless, apologetics and evangelism are related. You're making the point they're not exactly the same thing. When needed, apologetics is a means by which the way is both prepared and protected so that the message of the gospel can properly be presented. Apologetics is like the soldier who battles to protect the messenger who has the gospel to deliver it's even got a rhythm to it man <laughs> i wrote that that's pretty good where did i write that man i'm surprised 
All right. Thank you for that. Um, now, this is a repeat question, but the person was so nice to give a $20 super chat. We'll, we'll go through it again. Who is the most influential apologist or theologian for each panel member? God bless y'all and go Raiders. Um, all right. Let's just go quick since that person can go back to the beginning. You could just list the names and they can go back. So Braxton, uh, who is it for you again? Oh, I don't The apologist, uh, probably William Lane Craig. I'll just be a, I'll just be the straightforward fanboy. And okay. then uh, theologian, I like F.F. Bruce. His okay. Gospel of John commentary made me cry at the end. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, uh, Tony Costa? Yeah, I, mean, I would say, obviously, Walter Martin, because he's the one that the Lord used to put me on the straight path. And uh, mm-hmm. I would also say William Lane Craig. Uh, I really appreciate the work of, uh, uh, of uh, R.C. Sproul uh, mm-hmm. and uh, other, other Reformed writers. Okay. All right. Thank you. Michael? Uh, I would say probably Richard Swinburne and N.T. Wright, maybe Tim Keller to some degree as well. Okay. All right. Cool. Nate? I mean, I mentioned this. Uh, uh, J.P. Moreland, uh, Greg Kokel had a seminal influence on me in the formative years as a Christian theologian. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Hmm. Okay. Mm. All right. Nice choice there. That was a good one. All right. Matt? <laughs> Matthew? Walter Martin uh, helped just ground me, but I liked uh, Greg Bonson and introduced me to the issue of transcendentals. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've used that at infinitum ad nauseum, and uh, it's been very helpful. Okay, very good. Thank you for that. And Chris Date, um, friend of, of ours, a lot of us know who he is. Um, Michael Jones, Braxton, and myself will be speaking at the Rethinking Hell conference in October 28. Is it 28? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so if you're familiar with Chris date, he holds to the conditional immortality perspective. Um, I do not, I hold to a traditional view. So, um, he's invited, um, multiple people to kind of share from their perspective, uh, covering various, uh, topics. Um, Michael and Braxton, do you want to really quickly kind of just let people know what you'll be talking about? Just like the title of your talk. You don't have to go into all the details so folks can have a heads up on that. Michael, why don't you go first? Sure. I'll be talking about the issue of uh, does God send people to hell? Uh, how do we theologically wrestle that with a loving God? Uh, and, and so I'll be talking about how they, they work together. And I'll be arguing that the very existence of a loving God means that hell has to exist. Uh, and so that'll be what I'll be on. All right, so, Braxton, what about you? Yeah, so I'm excited about this event. It's going to take place at uh, the church I attend here in Evansville, Indiana. And uh, Chris teaches uh, Greek and Hebrew for us at Trinity College Bible and Theological Seminary. And so I have to say he's one of my closest friends. and I'm proud to have him as a close friend. Uh, People should know that the Rethinking Hell Conference has both um, traditionalists or people that believe in eternal conscious torment, just like it has conditionalists speaking at the conference each year. Most of the time, every one I've been aware of. And uh, so if you think, well, you know, I don't think my view is going to be represented. It probably will. And so I encourage you to come. I'd love for people to show up. I don't know what I'm going to be speaking about. Something to do with hell, I'm sure. And uh, so I hope you'll be there. <laughs> All right, cool. And I'll be talking about, my, my talk will be called, uh, Is Eternal Conscious Torment a Problem for Apologetics? So um, we'll be talking about, you know, the, the traditional view, how it can really turn a lot of people off, but does that create a problem for us when we're defending the faith? And so that'll be my my topic. Eli uh, promised you. that after we'd go out and do shots, just so you know. <laughs> hey, <Hey-o. laughs> 
<laughs> uh, well, I we can do shots of a glass of milk. Uh, I'll, no, I'll no, milk. we're doing hard liquor, sir. No, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate that $20 super chat. Alexander Wright, thank you for your $4.99 uh, super chat. Can we hear a brief uh, here? I'm a teacher, so that's going to get me H-E-A-R. Uh, that's a wrong here. But can here we hear we a brief summary of how everyone was converted? Uh, so maybe just a quick thumbnail sketch of how you came to the Lord. That's a great question. And I, I uh, really appreciate it. Um, Matt, why don't you share quickly your perspective and then we'll, uh, we'll move from there. Well, it'd be hard to get it to be short, but I'll try and get to the point. Um, when I was 17 years old, I was tricked into walking up forward to receive Christ at a church. And while up there, considering just running out of the exit, I still remember it. Uh, I decided to give Jesus a chance. Oh yeah. Yeah. I just waiting for the lightning bolt to come get me there. And um, I started, I just started asking Jesus if he was real to save me. I might as well give him a try. That was my attitude. And all I can tell you is the Holy Spirit himself overshadowed me with such power that I was reduced to a sobbing mass of weeping tears, just puking up my sin out of my, my every orifice, just, just snot, tears, moaning groaning in my in the presence of the incredible holiness and then next to me was jesus couldn't see him or touch him but it was him it wasn't like some i feel something it, it was him and i remember his presence i remember his attention i remember everything and um i'm skipping a lot of stuff of course and um he just moved into me and i had a physical sensation of my sin leaving and uh that was when i was 17 i'm 65 now I've calmed down a lot since then. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, Nate, how did God turn you from a pagan uh, sinner to a, uh, a, uh, a wise disciple? <laughs> you yeah. see like what I did there? <laughs> oh, I like that. Um, I, it's kind of the opposite. Uh, well, similar tracks as, as Matt, by the way, I, everybody said this, Matt, um, I have been heavily influenced by your work as well. And it's just been a pleasure, gentlemen. Um, you all inspire me. So I'm really grateful to be here. Um, I, I uh, had an experience of God when I was uh, 30 years old. And I was outside a hospital uh, in San Diego. And I'll never forget it. Like it happened yesterday. I can still remember it. I just felt God's presence. Um, I was, I was, so it was the opposite in a sense of Matt. I was a mess. Um, I had received some really bad news and I was just weeping. And the only thing that uh, I could muster up, because I grew up in church, I was not saved. Um, I treated it like a club. Hey, there's so-and-so, you know, lobby relationships in the church, Sunday mornings, you know how it goes. And so um, I, I just, I thought Christians were idiots. And in the moment, though, um, at my most desperate hour, so to speak, I just, I, I cried out to God in probably the most sincere prayer I've ever prayed in my entire life. I'm 43 now. And I basically just said, help, you know? And I felt, I, I don't know how else to describe it. I felt God's presence and I felt his peace. And it, it kind of, it just went through me. Amen. And I recognized that I had a, a spiritual moment. I, I felt, I felt the Lord. And so that just sparked me to begin a journey to understand my experience um, and that incorporated a lot of, you know, apologetics and theology. I jumped into school immediately, got a theology degree, stuff like that, just to understand and, uh, praise God. You know, I've been a, I've been a Christian now for 14 years. Oh, praise God. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, Michael. 
Yeah, it wasn't for Joel Osteen, guys. I don't, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, no, it, I don't ever really had one of those moments, I feel like. It was just a long process for me studying, trying to find truth. And I don't know that I ever really had a moment. It was just, I kept digging and digging. And I eventually just said, yeah, I think I'm a Christian. I think the evidence supports the resurrection enough that I can be convinced by this. And I still believe it. Okay, thank so you for I'm, that. I'm not yeah. a very emotional person. Sorry. <laughs> no, hey, listen, I, I know. Listen, I, I um, just if I can just jump in and share. I, I was raised no. in church, and there, see, Michael, behave. Um, <laughs> I was raised in church, and uh, I never had kind of this strong experience. But um, there was this weird kind of silent presence in my life as a little kid. I, I, I when I would see people kind of go off and do crazy things, I always had this kind of this quiet um, knowledge that God was saying, you're mine. And even when I was going off and, and doing things and behaving the way that, that I was behaving, um, I, I, I always had this in, un, intangible feeling that I was his and that he wasn't going to let me go. And it was only until I think seventh grade when I first started taking that more seriously and being more intentional about my faith. So it wasn't like a, a magical, uh, moment. You know, when I got baptized, I, I got baptized with a couple of friends and, you know, they, they asked me, how do you feel after you're getting baptized in front of the church? And one guy was like, you know, yeah, you know, I feel replenished or I feel, you know, renewed. And, you know, I, I didn't say this, but I should have, I was like, I feel wet, you know, like there, it's, there wasn't like this magical feeling. It was just this silent knowledge that like I'm his and he's there. Um, and I just can't explain it. So I very much resonate. I'm not a super emotional type of guy and, and that's fine. God uh, saves us and he does it in his own time, in his own way. And we all have a kind of a different backstory there. So no worries there, bud. All right. What about you, Dr. Costa? Yeah, I was raised in a very religious Roman Catholic home. Uh, we had relatives who were priests and, uh, I was religious, but I was very lost. I had no peace with God. I had no assurance of salvation. I, I feared death that if I were to die, I, I would go straight to hell. And so uh, I met two cousins of mine one evening They uh, in Toronto. They, they started just talking about this new birth that they experienced with Christ. And I thought, what in the world are you talking about? They said, oh, this, it, it's, it's grace, the grace of God. And they shared the gospel with me. I was more upset at the fact that they were uh, out of the they left the Roman Catholic Church. So I challenged them. I said, "I'm going to get a Bible and I'm going to prove you wrong." So there's a 15 year old kid, you know, of Portuguese immigrant parents, runs off to the store, buys his first King James Bible, this little Bible thing, and I literally read from Genesis to Revelation. My whole point was to prove them wrong, and instead. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ penetrated my heart. His words pierced my heart. And it was through the reading of his word that I came, I fell to my knees and I acknowledged him to be Lord and Savior. And um, and it was from that moment on that he didn't just save me, but he propelled me into the field of apologetics. And so um, that's why I do what I do today. But yeah, it's, it's wonderful knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, how about you, Braxton? So my father was a megachurch pastor in Jacksonville, Florida, and I we lived in a pastorum there on the river. And uh, one morning when I was years old, and I remember this, I wandered into the living room, told my dad, listen, I know who Jesus is, and I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that I need my sins forgiven. And I think I want to do with Jesus what you and mom have done with Jesus, and I want him to be my savior. And so I got down on the shag, brown shag carpet of that pastorum 
and prayed my own prayer to receive Christ, repented of my sins and trusted in Jesus. And I was baptized that day. Now, when I was 11 and my dad had gone into evangelism, I remember sitting in a revival service and it was hot. And the man, it was it was thick in the room. You, I, if you've never been in a revival service like that, I feel bad for you. There's something about it. And and the, and it smells like hymnals and it's hot and the preacher's stomping around. And, That's not all it smells know, like. Yeah, this is my childhood, man. This is my childhood. And and I got up because at this church we were staying underneath. There was a like a like a, a what they used to call a prophet's room off the fellowship hall. I went down there and I was afraid my dad was going to get mad at me for leaving the service, but I didn't care. And I told God, I said, Lord, I don't know what's going on. I know that I feel really convicted. I know that I prayed to be saved when I was five years old and I remember it. But Lord, if I've never given my heart to you, I give I give it to you today. Now, did I get saved when I was five or when I was 10 or 11? I don't know. I just know I prayed 600 times for the Lord to save me. And one time it took. That's what Peter Lord, <laughs> Peter Lord pastor in Titusville, Georgia. Park. I, I don't know. I know that by the time I was 10, I'd gotten some sinning under my belt. And maybe that's where the source of the conviction was. Mm -hmm. And I misinterpreted it. But all I know is Jesus saved me. And my most important credential is that I'm a servant of the king. Amen. Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, and thank you, Alexander. We'll go through just a couple more. I, I, you guys have been so generous with your time. I really do appreciate it. I do have one last question eventually. I will take a, maybe a, a few more, and then I have one last question I want to end with um, and uh, want to hear your thoughts on that. But uh, Michelle, thank you again for your $4.99 super chat. Uh, there's a comment here. Thank you, Matt Slick, for your great answers. Thank you. Thank all of you for your time and wisdom. I didn't mean to put anyone on the spot. So Michelle had asked a question, perhaps uh, one with, uh, you know, controversial implications. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, actually, let me see here. I kind of went out of order. I don't know if you guys caught anything in the, in the that stuck out to you. See, the thing with uh, StreamYard, you got to scroll through unless someone prefaces their question with questions. So I do apologize if I missed anyone's questions, but if I can't find anyone... Any question here? I'll just ask my last question. Uh, all right. Well, just let, let's wrap things up here. I'll ask my question here. And I just before I ask this question, I want to thank you guys so much. This has been awesome. Um, I think I think uh, even in the midst of our, our disagreements, uh, I think we did pretty good. <laughs> That's right. You know, I noticed a couple of facial expressions when someone gave. <laughs> That's okay. It's it's very hard to 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 just sit and hear something you disagree with and not say something. I think you I guys did an excellent, uh, excellent. Eli, uh, excellent somebody job. named yeah. Eric is uh, hollering at you. Ah, okay. So Eric paid for a super, a super hat. I don't know what a super hat is, but a super chat. So let's see here if I missed it. So Eric, let's see if I can find yours here. That shouldn't be too quick, too hard to find. So there's Michelle. Okay. Can he just state it in the chat again, really quick? Yeah, maybe they can. Maybe could ask ask the question again in the chat. Because I don't see it either. I don't see it. Yeah, Alexander. No, no, no. I think his question is, "What are your thoughts on pickleball?" Matt, you go first. Eric, no, it's not here. I found it. Is it Eric Collins? I'm on the top. Is it Eric Collins who asked the question? Okay, so here here it is. Here. Oh, I got this one. <laughs> okay, I think it was I think it was Erica. Yes. Okay. Sorry about that, Eric. Um, this will be the last question, and then we'll we'll wrap things up. You guys could all chime in on it. Uh, I know there's going to be different perspectives here, and that's fine. 
Um, but uh, after you, uh, we wrap up this question. I'll ask you my last question, then we'll wrap things up, okay? All right, uh, Michael, if you wanted to address that one, uh, given evolution, how do we reconcile that death is not a consequence of sin, but rather is what has exerted the pressures that led to us? And how does this affect the idea of Christ defeating death? So I, I think I'm probably the only one here who would say that they are a proud theistic evolutionist. Uh, and so I will take this one because I'm sure some other people who are just say, well, I don't, I reject evolution, but I accept it. Uh, so I think we need to, I would argue, I'm actually going to be debating Dr. Marcus Ross on this in a couple of weeks at the Capturing Christianity Conference okay. on Genesis and evolution. And I'll be talking about this. But generally what I would say is that uh, I don't see any place in the Bible where it definitively says that physical death came from the fall. People go to Romans 5. But of course, if you read past Romans 5, 12, it says that death reigned from Adam to Moses. And it says we all have life in Christ. Okay, well, that seems to be talking about spiritual death in life. How do we reconcile death with the consequence of sin? Well, I think death is a consequence of sin. I mean, it says in Genesis 3 that, you know, man has taken of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they cut him off from the tree of life, lest he hold of it. Okay, well, that is the context. It says right there their access to immortality came from eating of the tree of life. So scholars, a great scholar named Joshua John Van E, he wrote his dissertation called Death in the Garden. He makes a pretty good case death did exist before the fall based on a good reading of Genesis 1.28, uh, where it talks about how, uh, you know, subdue the earth and you have dominion over the animals. Well, those two words in Hebrew are very, very harsh. The word for having dominion usually refers to the idea of um, you can enslavement, conquest, harsh rulership. That's how it's used throughout the Bible. And he argues quite, I think, well, that it's, it's showing that animals were given to humanity for whatever purposes they needed. Uh, so I do think physical death existed before the fall. I think Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, given a special tree that granted them immortality. When they broke the covenant, they fell. They lost access to that tree. And so we all die in Adam because he was our first priest that failed. And Christ is the priest who succeeded it, who has succeeded. And we will all live in him through real immortality in the resurrection that is to come. So I think don't think this is really a problem. Uh, there's a lot more on my YouTube channel. I have a Genesis 1 to 11 series where I go through each chapter of Genesis in one graphic animated style video. And I talk about death and videos on Genesis one and Genesis three. I don't think this is a problem. Uh, I don't think the Bible definitively says physical death existed before the fall. And I think there were strong arguments. Scholars like John Walton, Michael Heiser, Joshua, John Vinny have put forward to support this. Okay. Um, now I know there are folks who disagree. If you disagree, you can share your disagreement or some observations or uh, maybe points you want to kind of uh, respond to if you feel compelled to do so. Yeah. I, would like to. I've been studying evolution for decades and have lots of notes, information on it. Um, and uh, I, I don't believe it, it has any coherence uh, logically or evidentially or informationally. I don't think it works. What if you mean information as in bio, uh, abiogenesis formation, information structure formation, transmission, and things like that? There's a lot of counter evidence to it. But um, so, I, you know, it'd be an interesting discussion to have uh, on that. And mm -hmm. um, when you say, you know, I don't want to be very polite here, but uh, it would be, a, there's some ramifications that are necessarily the fruit of theistic evolution. And maybe we could talk about them sometime. Just have a nice friendly discussion and see. If you I want to have that, me on, I'd be glad to do it. You know, I'd be happy to host. I'm sure Eli would love to host. <laughs> I may or may not judge it. Yeah. Okay. I know this is, this, is, this is definitely a hot button issue for people. And again, that would take, I mean, to go into the details and back and forth um, would, would take a little bit of expansion and explanation and things like that. So I know it's an important topic. Hey, listen, guys, I know that uh, some of the answers that some of us have given 
there are different, important differences. I get it. Um, but I hope that you guys are able to hear what each person has to say. And uh, you use the discernment you think is necessary to come to the conclusions that you think are are more in line with uh, the Bible and, and various forms of argumentation. So I hope that people could uh, take these different answers and perspectives uh, from from that perspective, if that makes sense. All right. Well, my last question, thank you so much for that super chat. My last question for you guys, um, and you guys can answer it, uh, you know, just one at a time there. In your opinion, what do you think is the most important apologetic issue confronting the church today? And what can we do to um, rise to the occasion to respond to those, those big, those big challenges that you think the church faces today? Michael, why don't you go first? I'm going in order of my screen here. So Michael, Tony, Matt, Nate, and Braxton. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, most important apologetic question that we are facing today. You know, it, it's hard for me to really say anything. I think a lot of it probably has more. The, the, I think a lot of them come from an underlying philosophical belief, which may be a belief in strong naturalism. Uh, we still see verificationism seeping throughout the culture, and that affects the way a lot of people think. The idea that, you know, if I don't see anything or I can't experience something through my senses, it's not real. A lot of people sort of think that because it's an older philosophy that sort of has seeped into the culture and it has affected everything. Now people just sort of throw that out that, you know, it's a Carl Sagan kind of slogan. If I don't see it, there's no evidence for it. I'm not going to believe it. So I think we need to combat a lot of the underlying philosophies like verificationism or logical positivism, which is really deeply built in our own culture. Um, and I think once we can uproot that, we'll start to see a lot of changes. I think a lot of the other objections sort of stem from that. Another, and I think the other thing is maybe one, maybe on the Christian side is we need to combat anti-intellectualism in the church. There's a lot of Christians that are like, I just need faith, or I just need some emotional, strong music with strobe lights and all the good fog and the big mega church. Come on, you, this, you, it's a good smoke machine can go a long way. <laughs> oh, come on. No, but I think we need to combat, because I've been to churches and I've been like, you have apologetics here, do you anything? Like, we don't really do that here. We just want to focus on winning souls. I'm like, you're not winning souls. If you're not including that, let's be honest here. So I think we need to combat the uh, logical positivism in the culture, which is a lot of the, the roots of a lot of the anti-Christian uh, sentiment. And we need to combat the anti-intellectualism within the church. Okay. All right. Thank you, Can Tony. I Yep, go ahead. I'm sorry, because mine is so similar to Michael. I, I probably in a different context, Michael, I bet you and I would get along famously and uh, hang out. And I'll take a shot with you. Uh, I'm not going to push back on that. But, <laughs> okay, um, great. I won't tell you what's in it, but it's 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 good. Uh, no, but creepy, especially with your mustache. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, hey, look, I saw Top Gun Maverick and I said, you know, anyway. Um, <laughs> No, but I, I would totally agree because I think I would approach your question, uh, Eli, from just a, a, a kind of a different angle, which is what Michael did here. Anti-intellectualism and biblical illiteracy are huge because my question and where I'm coming from is like, what are we saying? If we're going to engage folks, right? And this comes back to, I think, what Braxton was saying, like, what are we doing it for? We're doing it to fulfill the Great Commission, right? And so my biggest, so I, I pastor, been a pastor for years um, at a church here in Las Vegas. My biggest concern has always been, what do people do once they make a quote unquote decision? And that's, that's a whole other episode, right? For another time. But like, what do they do? And most Christians in my experience that I've been dealing with, they have no idea. And so that's where, uh, to me, the answer is anti-intellectualism and biblical illiteracy. If we can develop those from within the church, we'll have a much better vantage point by which to also like engage the culture that's outside. But also when someone comes over and they're converted, 
we can best set them up for success, spiritually speaking. Hmm. All right. Thank you for that. Um, Dr. Costa? Yeah, I, I would say that it depends on where you are. Uh, I mean, in, in the continent of Africa, we're dealing with the onslaught of Islam, of jihad, uh, where Christians are being massacred in Nigeria yep. and other parts. We don't hear about that in the West because it doesn't seem mm -hmm. to matter to Western ears. We see, we're, we're, we're more concerned about, I guess, Europe, Eastern Europe, Ukraine and Russia. Um, but it really depends where you are. In the West, my major concern in the West is the onslaught of uh, cultural Marxism. Uh, the social justice movement, progressivism, uh, which is causing havoc in our Western societies. By West, I mean North America, South America, uh, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, uh, where we have people who are confused about their sexual identity, they're confused about their, their gender, uh, they're confused about sexual orientation. Uh, we got critical race theory that has been uh, uh, causing havoc in the Southern Baptist Convention. convention. And, and I think that that we are at a point, a crossroads in the West, where we need to recapture the legacy of our rich Christian heritage. We do have an answer to these questions. Morals are objective. There is objective morality. There is meaning and purpose in the universe. And social justice, progressivism, all of that based on a Marxist ideology is destroying the fabric of our freedoms, of our Western uh, democracies. That's why there's, I'm a Canadian, and my country is almost appearing like North Korea. I'm still a prisoner in my own country. I cannot travel because uh, I need to have that miraculous shot. Uh, and they basically interrogate you uh, on your way back into the country. Um, so right now in the United States, there's even talks about getting rid of your Second Amendment, even the First Amendment. So I think we need to, in the West, we need to, um, we need to in, uh, uh, engage the culture uh, with a reasoned response, with a, a powerful gospel message that assures people that they're not just accidents of nature, that God did create us in his image, male and female, he created them. And so um, if we don't do this, we, we are going to see, we're, we are going to see some serious ramifications. And it's already happening, not just in my country, more so in my country, but it's also happening across the United States and across the Western world. Hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, Matt, what do you think is the biggest um, apologetic issue that challenges or faces the church today? I've always thought that answer uh, or that question is answered one way for me, just for me, sure. is that the church is not taking the inspired word of God seriously as a mm -hmm. final and ultimate authority that it is. I believe my personal opinion is that the word of God, God said, let there be light. And Jesus is the word made flesh. We have the word we can hold in our hands. If we're to take it seriously, believe what it says, you know, elevate Jesus Christ, preach that gospel. That's what's going to transform the world. I think the church is compromised a lot. I think um, a lot of pastors and elders all over are teaching a mamby-pamby theology, feel-good theology. Uh, we see it on TV a lot, and I don't think they're taking the word of God seriously. And if we do, take the word of God seriously, we'll live for Jesus Christ, we'll die for Jesus Christ, we will stand up for Jesus Christ and uh, do what's necessary for the Lord uh, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. That's that's what I think. If you believe the word and it's the ultimate authority and you behave like what you believe, then things will change. That's 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 mm -hmm. my position. It's variations of what they're saying, too. Sure, sure. Like what Tony said, too, of course. All right. Thank you. Nate, I, I, I think go. you... I got to be on teaching someplace else. Oh, go for it. Yes. Thank you so much, Something Matt. I really appreciate it. 
hey, you guys are awesome, man, except Thank for Tony, but you guys are great. <laughs> and, uh, so it's really good stuff. <laughs> except for Tony. <laughs> nice to see you, Tony, too. Take care. Take care. Okay, I got to go. All right, see you guys. All right. Uh, Nate, you cheated and you jumped in, uh, right? That's it. <laughs> It's okay. So we're gonna uh, we're gonna skip over you since you've already shared your thoughts. Um, if that's okay, and sure. uh, Braxton, you could finish us off. Yeah, I agree. Everybody said some great things. And the good thing about going last is nobody gets to come after you and say the <laughs> spiritual thing that makes yours look stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, Wait, but, I haven't uh, I haven't gone yet. So no, that's true. That's true. I can put my lights on, make me glow, and oh, say really holy and sanctimonious things. Going after me, he's gonna sound spiritual. Anyway, um, no, the. Um, I honestly agree a lot with what Tony and Michael said. We heard a lot from them about the philosophical underpinnings of various positions that are, um, or movements that are taking place in the West right now. Um, I think the cultural issues are uh, big. And I think honestly that like just, just recently uh, I saw someone say uh, an, an atheist uh, person out there, uh, Ben Watkins was saying, you know, how he, 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 criticizes new atheism online, you know, the loud atheists that are online. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, Christians love that until I, until I start talking about um, Christian stuff. And he mentioned Calvinism, a couple other things and, and bigoted Christians. Well, I'm not the other two things he mentioned, but I, so I said, well, I may be a big, there are people who consider me a bigot, uh, but I have been told that I'm the most loving bigot they've ever met. You know, I said that. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it's, it, that was shared by a polytheist who said, um, in fact, a polytheist that Michael Jones has debated. He said, look at, oh. this guy. look at this guy proud of being a bigot. And I said, I'm not proud of it. I'm not proud that people think I'm a bigot. I'm just aware people think I'm a bigot. Mm. The fact is everyone's a bigot in the eyes of somebody else. I mean, uh, when you talk about issues like LGBT, I get why they, they say the things they do. But then on the other hand, when we're talking about murdering children in abortion clinics by the millions, I think there, there are some people that think that's a bigoted thing to do as well. Mm -hmm. So we're going to hear that. You might as well get used to it. Don't, and here's the thing. If you go back to 20, 2010 up to about 2014, notice how quickly people started putting the rainbow flags on their pictures and things like that. Now, the, the point is just that Christians who decried certain things because of biblical sexuality before are in two years time, in the space of two years, went from being adamantly opposed to promoting it in those particular ways on their site. That's going to continue to happen. And those people are going to find those philosophical positions that they need to support what they're saying. And so I just think that actually, here's the surprising thing I would say about that. And I'm not anybody special. It's just that I've been a pastor and an apologist like several other people here. And, and I think what we need is to hit them with the truth clear truth on these uh, intellectual issues, but also be pastoral with them and mm. love on them and all, and ask them to go talk in a private chat somewhere instead of public where you're both beating your own chests. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. Um, so I think the cultural thing is, is, is big. And I think we're just going to need to get used to being considered and called bigots. If we'd stand on biblical positions mm -hmm. um, into the future. All right. Thank you for that. Now, since I'm the last, I can, you know, yeah. I could, uh, it's all about Jesus. Listen, the biggest problem with 
the Christian church is that we are not letting God be God. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. Um, no, if, if I could, if I could just share my, my thoughts, I think one of, one of the big, and everyone has touched on something that I think is an important thing to keep in mind. And it, it is definitely something that the church needs to deal with. Um, but me working as a teacher, um, working with young people, I think one of the greatest challenges the church is facing is losing their, the youth. Um, we're losing the, I mean, it's very easy to kind of get caught up in like what we're doing now. Um, but if the church does not think in terms of the future, uh, raising up an educated youth, uh, youth, young people that are grounded in the word of God, young people that are able to do apologetics and evangelize and to be biblically grounded in, in solid theology and not knowing simply what they believe, but knowing why they believe it and being able to convey that to the culture in a loving and respectful way. If we're not raising up the next generation right to do those things, I think that's going to have that long term negative effect that we, we're seeing uh, as generations leaving. Right. We're seeing that problem. So I think uh, the church really needs to put energy into raising up a generation. And I know that sounds really kind of, you know, preachery and you know, all that generation. You know, we've all heard, we've all heard sermons like that. But I think it's true. We need to think in terms of the long game. And that really uh, affects the way we we look at raising our kids and teaching young people and equipping uh, the young people for for the tasks that they're going to be they're already facing and what they're going to face in the future as well. So that's just my my two cents. Um, well, guys, we've gone two hours and six minutes. I want to thank you guys so much. You guys, I respect all of you. Again, I strongly disagree with a few of you on various issues, but I do appreciate you and what you're doing. And I know that um, as uh, Brother uh, Tony said, God can strike a blow with a crooked stick, right? Um, and I think that in, in in that foundational sense, I think that that um, I can pray that God continues to bless what each and every one of you are doing. And of course, um, you know, uh, even with the with the differences and all that and all that important stuff, um, I think we are still um, able to kind of. It's awesome we can sit here and talk and not argue with each other yet disagree very strongly. It's just me and Michael, Eli. It's just me and Michael. You have the disagreements with. Let's just say it. Well, Fight me, bro. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no. It, listen, I'm. It, it, whether it's Michael or I know that you and I disagree on some stuff and, and I'm not so sure. I mean, Tony, Tony, I think we're in agreement in a lot of areas. So I, I wouldn't yeah. be able to pinpoint. Um, and Nate, I, I'm not sure. I guess I don't know some of the specific stances he holds, but, but the fact that we're able to be able, we're able to be here and to talk about it and not, you know, kind of uh, try to strangle each other through the screen. I think that says a lot. And I hope that that uh, when people watch this, they can say, wow, like I don't need to get all, hot and bothered when I'm having a conversation with another Christian that I strongly disagree over, um, you know, various issues. They're, they're not unimportant. We should have those discussions and debates, but that doesn't mean we can't sit at the table and talk about them. I hope that really is conveyed in this episode. So mm. without further ado, guys, I want to conclude this special episode. You guys, I thank you so much. And thank you for the 5,000 plus subscriber subscribers. And I really appreciate the super chats and all the support. Until next time, guys, uh, keep keep uh, keep your eyes uh, peeled and your ears uh, open. I'm going to be having some really interesting uh, guests in the future uh, that folks might be uh, interested in. So I'll, I'll keep you guys updated on that as well. Where's so, your ear again, Eli? Yeah, I don't know. Did I mess? Did I mess up? Did I keep your ears peeled. You see, <laughs> just I in feel, case you didn't know, he's pulling on it. It's, it's your a, ear. That's right. <laughs> well, that's it. Let, let me get, let me end this before I say something stupid. Okay. Take care, guys. Uh, that's it for this episode. Uh, God bless. Bye-bye. God bless, everybody.